0: The OCM presents Open Line. The opinions expressed on this show are not necessarily those of the station. And now your host, Patty Daly.
1: Well, all right, and good morning to you. Thank you so much for tuning in to the program. It's Friday, May the 19th. This is Open Line. I'm your host, Patty Daly. David Williams is producing this. Come on with an edition of Open Line. So, if you're in the St. John's metro region, the number to dial, 709-273-5211. Elsewhere, toll-free, long distance, one 888 590 VOCM, which is 8626, well, T-G-I-F, I got to say today. Anyway, it looks like pretty good forecast for the May long weekend, the Victoria Day weekend. Hopefully, and this is not to be preachy, but hopefully people keep in front of mind, on top of the leisure and letting it all hang out and having a few drinks with the lads or your buddies or whatever the case may be, But highway safety, boat safety, fire safety, there's actually a load of wildfires already happening here in the province. At this moment in time, there's 53 wildfires covering 109 acres. Compared to last year, at this time, there was only 18. Of those 53 fires, 34 fires before the 1st of May, compared to only two in the same time period in 2022. So that doesn't necessarily mean it's going to be a wicked wildfire season, but those are the numbers as of today. So try to keep some safety in the front of your mind. Okay, it's so Victoria Day. Interestingly, so generally referred to back in the day as the celebration of the Queen. It's a federal holiday, statutory holiday. It's an official holiday in six of the provinces and all three territories. So, of course, it's to honor Queen Victoria. And her original, pardon me, her birthday is on the 24th of May, but now we have a floater so that it happens on the Monday of the long weekend. Okay, so for a long time in this country, Members of French and British royal families have been commemorated in some form or fashion, but it was in 1845 that the guarantor of minority rights in the colony, Queen Victoria, made it uh, Canada's oldest official holiday and does bring on questions about the role of the monarchy here and elsewhere. We know that many parts of the, the colonies have decided to formally separate ties with the monarchy, and I think there's some conversations about that in this country as well, if you'd like to be part of that conversation. And also, incidentally, it was 112 years ago today, in 1911, the world's first national park department, Parks Canada, was established. Actually, five years before their American counterparts. We're lucky to have it. Parks Canada manages 48 national parks, three national marine conservation areas, 172 national historic sites, one national urban park, and one national landmark. So, if you visited parks across the country, Parks Canada does play a pretty critical role, whether it be for biodiversity and or, yes, the capture and the education of our country's history. They manage 181,000 square miles. And, of course, some of the most beautiful parks in the world are right here in Canada. So 112 years ago today, Parks Canada established in 1911. All right, so needless to say, I didn't stay up all night to watch the uh, Eastern Conference final between Carolina and Florida, but that pesky Matthew Kachuk, He's putting together a bit of a Conn Smythe type run. Scored with just over 12 seconds remaining in the fourth overtime. There's, a, you know, I don't like the shootout very much, most like uh, much like many uh, many hockey fans. But there's a reason why they don't play till the uh, winning goal is scored in the regular season. Can you imagine having to bounce back, get on an aircraft, travel to the next city, play the next day after playing just about seven periods of NHL hockey? But Florida up in the series, and I don't know if anybody follows the sport of Kings anymore. Certainly some of the Glamour has rubbed off the sport of horse racing, but the Preakness Stakes is this weekend. It was on this date in 1973 that Secretariat, uh, with Ron Turcotte on board, won the Preakness in 154, fastest ever. So Secretariat has the fastest Kentucky Derby, the fastest Preakness, and the fastest Belmont. And Madge, the Kentucky Derby winner, is in the field of eight horses looking to knock off the second second jewel in the Triple Crown. If you're staying in town this weekend, maybe you want to consider going over the Swatters rugby pitch on Crosby Road. The Newfoundland Rock, they host the Nova Scotia Celtics uh, Saturday, May the 20th, 3 p.m. at the Swatters Club. There have been some really titanic matches between these two sides. So gates open 2:30. It's only five bucks to get in. If you're under 19, you get in for free. So maybe you'd be interested in taking in some rugby this weekend. And as I mentioned yesterday, we PVR. Jeopardy in the house. We watch that supper time together. So I guess we probably won't do that tonight, actually, because I know the answer to the final Jeopardy question. And our Labrador man, John Groves, was on the program last night. He actually had an opportunity through that little interview phase, talk about the size and the population of Labrador, his hometown in Fort O. Talk about icebergs and polar bears. So that was pretty cool. And he did indeed get the final Jeopardy question right, but he came up short, could not uh, defeat the defending champion. Uh, ben Chan, but he wins a couple of thousand bucks for his effort, so that's pretty cool. No jeopardy for me to know, or maybe I'll just cheat. <laughs> Alright. So, the Snow Crab. I we'll usually leave that a little bit further down, because we've been talking about it a lot, but there was a protest outside of the FFAW offices yesterday. And as we know, the emotions are bubbling over, the frustrations are very, very real, and it does seem like, on the outside looking in, that there's starting to be some splinter in the solidarity of the boat tie-up. They want to get at it. You know, comments early on is that harvesters would be willing to go bankrupt versus go fishing for 220 a pound. Looks like that's not the case. There's already some boats on the water. The Association of Seafood Producers say they've got bait and ice ready, and so now some harvesters are just going for it. We'll see how that all unfolds when they return to the wharf to offload. The Association even talked about providing security on the wharf, security at the processing plants. Some of the numbers that have been put forward by both sides Maybe intentionally misleading. So, if we're talking about the percentage of market share, it is vastly different this year for the harvester than it was last year. A big reduction in their market share of the price. Some of the harvesters that were at the protest yesterday, some 100 strong, actually openly openly talked about not only calling for new leadership and Greg Pretty, the president of the union, to resign, but also talk about the future of the processing sector. Look, there's always going to be some headbutting because they all have their own agenda. But I think we would have a provincial loss if all of a sudden the processing sector went away in part or in full. So lots of questions to be asked, but they are really, really obviously quite frustrated there. And on that front, you know, one of the processors that have been in operation here in this province for over seven decades, Quinlan Brothers. Quinlan Brothers last night were celebrated as one of Canada's best managed companies. So congratulations to them. Their operations, of course, out in Bay de Verde. And if you want to bring that conversation a bit forward about Grieg's harvest of their farm salmon at Placentia Bay, was set to go to the OCI plant and say, Lawrence, now it's going to be going to Beta Verde at the Quillen Brothers operations, but you want to take it on. And anything inside that snow crab world, we're happy to talk about it because the implications, and the people caught in the middle here, through no fault of their own, is extraordinary. And whether it be fabrication companies in Triton or trucking companies or restaurants and bars and lounges and hotels and every other implicated organization or individual, if you have a perspective you want to bring forward, let's do exactly that. And to recap another protest yesterday. This outside, Frank Roberts Jr. High in CBS. I mean, when you hear what the parents and many of the students say about the conditions there and whether it be outrageous or deplorable, mold or rats or mice or anything else, But the fact of the matter is it's built in 1969, and when they say it's overcrowded with some 660 students, they make some very specific references. For instance, in the science lab, you can't even put an entire class in the science lab at Frank Roberts Junior High, apparently, which obviously is not a good thing. No cafeteria in the school, but now the school district itself, and of course the CEO, Terry Hall, says he doesn't agree with the idea that there's a replacement required. He says just because of the complaints that they've heard doesn't make it an unsafe or not unhealthy place to learn. I don't think the parents agree with that, and certainly many of the students don't agree with that. And if we have stories of students that are at home with respiratory issues that they're pointing the finger of blame directly at some of the moldy conditions that they see, and unable to open the windows because, they say, the Rollins are so bald, they would be hopping in and out, chewing on their snacks and their lunches in their lockers. So there's more to this conversation. One thing I will say is that when the province says that they sent in an inspector to do air quality tests for instance, is that the school passed and consequently deemed safe. One parent in particular who's kept me in the loop with their perspective, and we're happy to hear from Kerry Hall as well and Minister Haggy, whoever would like to chime in, is you wonder what kind of heads up and preparation anyone gets for an inspection on a job site, at a restaurant, in a school, in another public building, or any building that requires an inspection. Because sometimes, if you get enough or leeway, then you're going to do the preparations to ensure that you pass inspections for air quality or otherwise. So it's one thing to have the windows open all day to try to prepare the school to pass an air, air quality inspection. Not saying that's the case, but that's one of the allegations made by some of the parents. So if you're involved in the Frank Roberts Junior High School community, your call is also welcomed here today. All right, let's go to Ottawa for a second here. So, there's obviously a lot we can talk about, but one thing in particular, I think someone who does important work for the country is uh, Yves Giroux. He's the Parliamentary Budget Officer. He and his team did an analysis of the Clean Fuel Regulations and released the, their findings yesterday. So what Mr. Giroux and his team say, and this is, I'll give you some of the details inside the Clean Fuel Regulations. By 2030, the carbon intensity of fuels must fall to 15% below 2016 levels. And that, according to Environment and Climate Change Canada, will deliver 26 million tons of greenhouse gas emission reductions. They established a carbon uh, credit and all this have you. They're trying to ensure that the reduction in carbon in fuels is achieved, but it comes with a price. So maybe it's to encourage more use of hydrogen and biofuels, but Mr. Giroux is pointing out very clearly that it does come with an economic price to Canadians. He says the estimated range will be by 2030 up to 0.3 percent of GDP or nine billion dollars. Talking about disposable income going to fuels, which will see an additional 17 cents per liter. He says range from about 0.62 percent of disposable income or 231 dollars for lower household or lower income households, or about 0.35% of disposable income or over a thousand dollars for higher income households. So. Everything that we do in these regulatory approaches does indeed come with a price tag. The pushback from parties who support these regulations say that what is not factored in by Mr. Giroux is anything to do with the cost of climate change, whether it be the heat heat waves, wildfires, more intense storms. So fair to uh, factor in the entirety of the big picture, but those new fuel regulations, they're coming. And on top of that, you know, a lot of this, of course, to encourage people to get away from an internal combustion engine, and if the liberals have their way, they'll have no more sold in 2035, no new ICEs sold in 2035. On top of that, then there's the conversation about the preparation of the infrastructure for transmission lines and the human resources required for electrical engineers to be part of this process. In addition to that, is big conversations happening around the world about the demand for battery minerals. So whether we're talking about cobalt or lithium, manganese or nickel, the runaway demand could put us in a real pickle here. Here are some of the numbers to consider. One of the recent studies that's been released says demand for lithium alone could rise by roughly three thousand to seven thousand percent by 2050. Demand for nickel, cobalt, manganese could also increase by thousands of percent at the same time frame. So you can just picture what problems could be in the offing. Now, it's one thing for a demand on minerals, but I do think people are rightfully pointing out that if these things are coming quicker, or yes, quicker than maybe some people would like, preparation of infrastructure and the engineering capacity required is simply not in place at this moment. So yes, the electric vehicle fleet, globally, is only about 3% of the all the vehicles on the road. And then they talk about whether or not some of the heavier, so say for instance, highway tractor trailers, You know, the implications for whether it be electric vehicles and or driven by hydrogen or biofuels and the clean fuel regulations, I think there's still a conversation to be had here and some fine-tuning or tweaking of some of these things because they are big conversations. And look, it doesn't matter if me or you or anybody else wants an an electric vehicle because some of the minerals, is not for an EV battery alone. Your laptop, your cell phone, anything with a rechargeable battery, these lithium, pardon me, these minerals are in high demand, so... I know those are big conversations, but big conversations should be part of what we're talking about, don't you think? All right, stick with Ottawa for a second. So, yes, I see and hear some criminologists and social science professors talking about the bail reform proposals that have been tabled, worried about some of the red flags, they say, for the reverse onus for those to prove themselves or to articulate why they should be released versus the Crown trying to encourage the judge to consider either bail or revoking bail or no bail at all. So the bail reform kind of looks pretty sensible to me. But one thing that has been quite contentious is Bill C-21. That's the gun control, gu- gun control legislation. It has passed in the House of Commons. It's now on its way to the Senate. The government did back down or backpedal on a one amendment in particular that really would have had, you know, what people say, law-abiding gun owners, hunters and otherwise, would have their firearm banned while another firearm that does the exact same thing, same capacity, same functionality remains on the okay list. Now the big focus here would have been of course on handguns and it does indeed target handguns in force whether it be with the ability to uh, import or sell or transfer a handgun. It does increase the penalties for hand, pardon me, gun trafficking, guns, handguns in particular, to 14 years from 10 years. So I think there's an argument to be made that I'm not so sure, other than if you're competing in Olympic-style handgun activity, that the need of a handgun, I'm not so sure. Now, people who are gun enthusiasts or gun owners, you're welcome to call and offer your perspective on this. Some of the weapons that people consider that should be bad, whether it be the AR-15-style firearms, okay. But when people are talking about public safety, gun violence that does not make you a bad liberal to question the government as to the approach to this gun control bill and whether or not enough focus has been afforded to the border. The Association of Police Chiefs in this country have long said the number one issue regarding gun violence is the importation of guns, illegal handguns, from the United States. So yes you can increase the penalty for importing a handgun to 14 years from 10 years, but unless we have the ultimate crackdown in that arena, than gun violence and public safety. This bill can do what it's intended to do, but I think, uh, once again, it kind of feels a little bit like the cart in front of the horse. Now, we've spoken to Minister Bill Blair, but he was formerly as the, the Minister of Public Safety, and they contend, that they're doing what they can and should be doing at the border, but yet the importation of guns, and there's been cases out there where they were able to track a gun that was involved in a crime all the way to its point of origin in the United States. So we know what happens, and it's probably going to be virtually impossible to eliminate it in full, but the crackdown there probably makes the most sense when we're talking public safety. How are we doing out there, Dave? A little bit of good news before we go. Okay, A little bit of good news, the WestJet strike has been averted. WestJet uh, carries about 28% of the domestic traveling public, Air Canada about 47%. So good news for anyone who had anything booked on WestJet, you're going to be in the skies. By the look of it, no interruption for WestJet flights at St. John's International Airport today that I can see. Right on Twitter, or are Open line. Follow us there. Email address is openline My favorite is when you pick up the phone and give us a shout like you're going to do during this break. Don't go away. Welcome back to the program. Let's begin on line number one. Good morning, John Chieson. You're on the air. Good morning, sir. How are you doing? I'm doing okay, thanks, John. How are you doing?
2: Uh, but I want to speak a bit about Monday Club again here in, uh, in Goose Bay. Um, uh, we were on CBC. I don't know if I'm allowed to say that, but I'm going to. Uh, CBC there on the, uh, on the 17th, and they they done a, a tremendous job. The only thing is they were saying that we received, like me and my wife, we received money from their... Uh, Federal emergency measure. We didn't receive nothing from the federal government. I mean, federal government or or the provincial, any type of financing, and nothing from none of them. It's, the, the reason why is because when when they came up with this uh, uh, kind of uh, funding that they were going to give us for the emergency measure, emergency disaster, and everything. They also had a clause in that. The provincial government now had a clause in that saying that if we took the money, we wasn't allowed to sue the provincial government or Nelcor. It's affiliated uh, uh, members or affiliated business that they had there, which was Nelcor. we never took the money. It's because of that. I mean, you know, if you look at it my way, if they tell, if they like, we had a class action also going out, and it was with uh, Ray Wagner's Wagner's Law Firm in in Halifax, and then they're coming and telling me, uh, if you take some money, you're not allowed to sue the government. So I mean, we never took the we never took the money, but in light of that, after that, now we find out we find out this was federal government that money. It was not provincial money. Now, how would the provincial government put some kind of a, a clause in there saying that if we took the money, we wouldn't allow to sue them? We we wouldn't allow to sue the government,
3: provincial government. I mean, it's unreal what they got done to us.
1: Yeah, it sounds like a bit of a government uh, overstepping the boundaries here a little bit. Just so folks remember, it was the 17th of May, of 2017 that. within a matter of minutes, the water rose by several feet in the community. We saw the pictures of the devastation. There was a class action lawsuit certified. Uh, It was brought forward in 17, certified in 19. The province was actually successful with an appeal to back themselves out. So the the, uh, residents of Mud Lake are not suing the province. They're actually suing Newfoundland Labrador Hydro because blaming Musgrave Falls for the flooding just to set up the picture for folks.
2: Well, we we were suing we were suing both at the time, right? Uh, Nelcor and the provincial government. But then they came in when we went to the courts or something. They said we, we we were not allowed or we we wasn't able to sue the provincial government, but we could sue Nelcor. Now our our okay, that's that's since changed to the Newfoundland Hydro, which we know that, and we still can sue Nelcor. But the thing is now, if Nelcor never done nothing wrong, how come they won't release documents to
1: our lawyers that we're waiting for to go to court? Yeah, apparently, the uh, if I remember the story correctly, your lawyers are still waiting for millions of pages of documents, which is yes, just going to drag the process out longer.
2: Yes, and I mean, why, if no court hasn't done nothing wrong, if they didn't do nothing wrong, for God help them if they did, if they didn't either, but why aren't they releasing these documents that we need? That our lawyers need to, to, so we can get this process going.
1: Uh, I, I don't know. You
2: know I know that's what I don't know either, and, and it's unreal. Oh, Nelco, we didn't do, you know, the way the way the way it sounds to me, Nelco are saying to me and saying to all of us, oh, we didn't do nothing wrong. But if they didn't do nothing wrong, how come they're not releasing these documents that we're waiting for?
1: Well, I imagine you your know, lawyers they, have the legal ability to compel the release of the documents, right?
2: Apparently, I was talking to our lawyers a few days ago, and they can't. They, it's got to be released from well, of course, lawyers, and they won't release it for some reason. I don't know. Our lawyers said they can't. They can't. They, they, they can't. Their hands are tied. They can't do nothing until they get these documents. Now, I don't know how they're going to be able to go about it, but what I'm talking when I'm talking to them, they're not, they can't do nothing. Their hands are tied, and it's unreal. I mean, just six years now, and, and the nebula, like I said, we're seeing nothing from the federal government or the federal disaster, unit. It's because the government had a clause, the provincial government now had a clause, and they're saying that if we, soon, if, we, if we took the money, which the disaster release money, we wasn't allowed to sue them or Nelcor. I mean, and they added to the task there, so I mean, you know. And I'm I'm the front the front giver on this uh, tax action lawsuit. You know, I'm the one that's got my name right on top of the page there saying, <clears throat> you know, uh, this tax action lawsuit's got to go through. Now, <clears throat> by saying that, they're saying to me then they come and the letter came to me. I got a letter, something I from them saying, if you if you takes this money. You cannot sue NELCOR or you cannot sue the provincial government. Yeah,
1: that's right. I heard that part. So some people did yeah, take. No,
2: but the thing is, this is, this is federal money. It's not provincial money.
1: Uh, yes, I The understand.
2: federal disaster release fund is federal.
1: Understood. Not provincial. Yes, I understand that, John. So some people. Did take the province up on their offer of two hundred seventy thousand dollars, but the caveat was was that they had to move well, out of Mud Lake, right? No
2: don't, and it's good because you no, know, this this is wonderful. I mean, if they could take this money, but see the thing is, this money has got nothing to do with the class action lawsuit. Yeah. Not a thing. It's provincial <laughs> money that they're giving out to our provincial, provincial federal. Because if you looked at the item uh, the, there and under on, the, on this. Uh, uh, relocation money. It's both federal and provincial. That's just 50/50. But that it got nothing to do with tax action. So if they came after me 250 to 260 thousand dollars to move, yes, I take it because it got nothing to do with tax action. Also, not a thing. That's provincial.
1: Yeah, but you're suing a provincial entity. Yeah, but no, we can't sue the provincial. This yeah, is it, see. Yeah, no, hold on, John. It's right there, but that that money is yes. provincial, and you're suing Nalcor. I guess well, Newfoundland Labrador Hydro, one and the same, I suppose. So if what you take it? if if hold on, if you take the money, does that mean that you have to not only move out of Model Lake, but you have to withdraw from the class action? No, not to not
2: that I not that I see. Uh, because the thing is, there's nothing, in the, there's nothing in the document saying that, you know, we can't not sue the government. Now, the provincial, not no, no, the government, I mean NELCOR, because our, our lawyers are just waiting for these documents from NELCOR to bring this to the tax act. And I feel like everybody, else. I understand, and you understand, but a lot of people don't. But they were waiting for these documents, and if we can only get these documents, then we can go forward. Me, I'm not getting I'm not, gonna get, I'm not getting no money from nothing. I never got no money from the Federal Disaster Unit. And okay. the CBC said that the other day. The CBC did, that said that the other day when I was on an interview there. They said that I received money from the Federal Disaster Unit. No, we, not, we did uh, not receive That's
1: money. right. I understand. That was your initial point. Uh, for me, how about you invite your lawyers to call this program, if they're some client, to talk about where we are in the process and what can or cannot be done to compel uh, hydro to release whatever documents are still outstanding do that for me will you john
2: oh, I will, sir. i'll do that right away as soon as hey. i get off of you i'll get them, somebody to give you a call and and see you in you and what's going on i appreciate and this i'll listen to it thanks john no thank you sir
1: for everything well, my pleasure take care bye-bye Bye. yeah it'd be interesting to hear from the lawyer on that let's go to line number two good morning Lewis. you're on the air yes
4: uh... yes i sent you an email last night about what was going to go with this uh... Uh, my granddaughter that you will know, just uh, uh, graduated from school, which is a good thing and when everything's a busy time. We're from the carnival area, and she accepted uh, for this PCA course and uh, which is great and but and all, we got all these doctors to do and one thing or another. but one of the things she had to have done is a TB, t- TB test, tuberculosis test. and Eastern Health in uh, new in Clareville, wouldn't do it. They used to do it. They stopped doing it, and I found out they stopped. Everybody stopped doing it three years ago, and this is putting some hardship. I drew. I've been my granddaughter in the St. job now Tuesday and yesterday, and now she got to come back the end of the month, and she, we got to do it over again. She got to get two tests done, and we can't get can't get nobody to look at in Clarnville. Can't get nobody look at the tests in We called Eastern Health. They're up to the nurse station. They Give us a phone number, we phone, phone, don't get nobody, and then by the way, got phone back to get another number. We phone, and we got just beautiful people that are doing it. They're an international travel agency down Wall Street, that's who does it, and that's where we had to go get it done.
1: Okay, so uh, I just want to be clear you have to get a TB test done to enter into the uh, personal care attendant course, but the government doesn't offer the test. Is that what you said? Yes. That's a funny requirement that they can't even oblige. But by I tell you, put
4: some people through some hardship. I can I can visualize now it's hard on us, man. We we're, we're older people, and I'm driving now with a sore hip and a sore leg because of all this driving that I you know, and uh, and a lot of people I, I, I tell you must put them through a uh, uh, through a lot of hardship. And if you're uh, say, as, far as I know if you're like you if you're going to apply for a job as a home care worker you got to have that test on. If you're living down Kingsolver Shover, Bount, whatever you're doing, you've got to come to St. John's to get it done. The missus, I think, even said people come from as far as grandfathers.
1: It's it, a wonder that they don't do it in public health offices.
4: Uh, well, I know sir, what, I'm, uh, what I've been told now is that what I've been finding out that public health used to do it. They stopped doing it three years ago. And what I'm saying is this putting a lot of hardship on a lot of people and a lot of students and 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 you know, I suppose nurses, people going in nurses or or all these people, they all got to have the same
1: test on. Right. So eventually you had it done where? At a At, travel agent? Yeah, well it's an international travel agency down on Wall Street. Okay. And
4: they got the own clinic. You go in, anybody can go in and get paid forty five dollars and get this test on. So uh, it's like getting scratches is uh, uh they he does a test and then a couple days later he goes back at it and a certain color I suppose, you don't need a needle so that's fine we got clear of that but now the performance for this course is that you got to get it done twice so now we got to go back in the end of the month now and we'll do the same thing she so you'll get it done uh, a scratch one day on her arm i suppose She puts in a little bubble or something in there arm and then two days later we go back and everything it's fine now we we got to get a document from them that will satisfy the people at the trade college because all this information is all part of her application to go to trade school.
1: Understood. So, yeah, I think it's called a a terbucilin skin test, if I'm not mistaken. So uh, I just heard from someone uh, who operates another private agency called Catalyst Health Solutions. They do TB testing as well. I'm not sure if that helps this particular call. So I appreciate the time. I'll follow up with Eastern Health as to why they don't do uh, TB testing in public health offices if it's a mandatory requirement to get into something like a PCA course. So I can do that follow-up.
4: Well, that's why, that's why I called you. And, and uh, not very often I called anybody, but, but that's why I called. Because I think there's
1: a very big injustice being done to people for I, for nothing. I appreciate this. I'll follow up. Okay, thank you. Thanks, Lewis. All the best. All right. All right, uh, let's go ahead and take a break. Don't go away. Saturday morning, join us for the Irish Newfoundland Show. Send your requests to irishnl at vocm.com or submit them online at vocm.com. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number four. Sam, you're on the air.
5: Good morning, Patty. I'm calling this morning about this Mr. Ford down in Summerford, is it? Flying Ford? About uh, the municipality's uh, Trying to close down their operations, their little operations, and uh, and it seems to be a growing problem across the island. Has been I've been predicting this is for a few years now that municipalities are starting to mingle into uh, small farmers or people having livestock to be sustainable, or to supply their local neighbors, friends of local grown products. And uh, with uh, with these municipalities, uh, government their bureaucracy, uh, I call them their, their guys in front line. They're the ones that's out there pushing the people to. To get out of the industry including the the federal inspectors and the provincial inspectors because right now you cannot slaughter your animals uh, unless it's into a meat inspected slaughterhouse and i asked that question why and he says well it's because of public health reasons and well what your public health reason because of mad cow disease and after, we don't have a case in newfoundland we don't have any kind of torto diseases in newfoundland that you're talking about that has not proven cases if it did it was shifting on your already uh processed and uh, and you 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 are and the farmers to do to, gotta to get out of the business, or, or travel 200 kilometers to get their animals slaughtered. But yet the lives your livestock will share the same pasture with the moose and the caribou, and uh, and eat the same grass. And they dig and drag them all over the place and bring them and get their meat cut up. But you I mean in my support again? Getting back to the topic again. We've got to support Mr. Ford and this municipality, what they're doing and getting on with it has got to stop. It's got to come to an end. They can't be pushing us around and telling us that we can't keep livestock or what we've got to, where we've got to put it to. If we had this land for 20 or 50 or 100 years, we've been doing this for generations, and it hasn't been a problem before, all of a sudden we've got these other people decide, well, we don't like that smell because I'm going to build a house next door that are probably two blocks yeah. away, or I don't like the animals bawling or the roosters crawling. Let those guys farm. Let them keep their livestock. You mean it's bringing bringing in local products that's homegrown, that you know that is safe to eat compared to what you get shipped in, and you get recalls every day from the mainland.
1: Yeah. So the bylaws that are on the books, some communities – have turned a blind eye to some of the homesteading or backyard farming, but of course when there's a complaint brought forward and it's uh, it contravenes the bylaws on the books and councils are mandated by law to act on it and to enforce it. The problem is is that some of the bylaws have just simply gone too far, maybe because there's some local busy bodies that are upset about one thing or another, and consequently council pressure to amend bylaws. but when we know, regardless of cost of living issues or anything else. The popularity of the sustainability of the cost of uh, providing for yourself, whether and or to uh, barter with your fellow backyard farmers or homesteaders, we've got to do a better job there. Like I mean, add to it. All of a sudden, after five years, they're trying to kick a Shetland pony out of Summerford. You know, we've just got to take a step back. Now you can't throw caution to the wind, and you can't let everyone do exactly what they want, no matter what. Because there's also federal laws dealing with, like, for instance, I think you mentioned food inspectors. Canada Food Inspection Agency does play a role here, so we can't just do whatever we want. But we should be able to do more than what some municipalities are allowing. There's no doubt about it. You mean it's gone beyond the limits now? You mean it's basically discouraged anybody? One hand, they're promoting the
5: industry, and the other, they'll get their frontline bureaucracy coming in and uh, sh- shutting you down, putting all these rules and regulations in place. You mean, it's probably been implemented 20 years, so they sat on it there for 20 years, and all of a sudden, this year, here, the last three years, they're going to start enforcing these rules and regulations on you. Then you mean, well, they say, well, the first thing they'll tell you, well, we, this law's been in place for 20 years, but now we're just enforcing it the last three years. So, you mean, that's, they've been pulling us onto this industry for a long time and as many farmers many people have been pushed out of it because of municipalities federal inspectors and provincial inspectors you mean they're being out here the local business has been hassled the meat nutting facilities the livestock uh uh, uh food and grain places they've been hassled a deck by the federal inspectors do you want to be there do you want to know where your cattle's to? do you want to know where your proper tags is on them if you, you mean the safest place you got to do is put it on your piece of property because it's getting too expensive to bring it anywhere else because you can't travel 200 kilometers, you can't go 100 kilometers to bring your livestock. So, you mean you got to keep them home in your hay that you used to have for hay fields is now becoming a pasture because you got another choice to push you in corners. Then, when you did them in your corners, then you got your municipalities dragging down your throat and say, Well, you can't keep them there now. So, then what, what are we going to do? You mean this, this here has got to stop? You mean the governments don't care, they sit back. They, they mean they they say they're going to do this and that, but they actually don't do nothing. If you're going to promote the industry, promote it all the way. Don't promote it halfway and let your front lawn bureaucracy come in and and, and attack uh, the farmer on all these rules. Well, you got to do this first. Well, how, and and and, then, and how can you keep in business? How can people even to be sustainable? How can you support your to try to live off a wholesome life? You can't. It's not possible the way the system is working. They're trying to shut everybody down and they want everything imported in as if it is expensive. You notice in the grocery stores, it's gone sky high and they're trying to make everything for us to pay to make so we can charge sky high for if we got to uh, sell something to buy an extra feed or a piece of equipment for our tractor or, or, or a blade for our horse more, whatever it is. You I mean it's, it's got to, this municipality has it's, it's gone out of control when it comes to the
1: agriculture industry. It's, okay. it's got to stop. Appreciate the time, Sam. Thank you. Have a good day. You too. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. You know, there's always going to be some regulations about what you can and cannot do inside the boundaries of one municipality or another. But in some places, like, for instance, it's one thing to have rules and regulations or bylaws in place in densely populated parts of the province, say, for instance, in the neighborhood where I live. You know, is there a place there for livestock? Probably not but in so many other communities that have less densely populated areas, much more land afforded to the ho- homeowner for some chickens or a goat or piglets. Like we had a fellow call the other day about uh, just a couple of small piglets. Fifteen weeks later, you got yourself hundreds of pounds of, uh, of pork. So I, think, I do think it's time to go back to the drawing board with these types of municipal bylaws, try to get it a little bit more close to right as opposed to, Seems pretty heavy-handed in some of these communities. You want to talk about it? You know what to do. Let's go to two. Uh, line one. Steve, you're on the air.
0: Hey, morning, Patty. How are you? Excellent. You? Good. Good. I just want to chime in real quick uh, regarding a previous caller who was talking about uh, tuberculosis vaccine uh or no sorry the the test for tuberculosis uh i just wanted to add my experience to the tuberculosis test file um i had to get a tuberculosis test a couple years ago uh, because i was applying for a visa to live in europe um at the time i was living in montreal and i thought it would have been you know no problem to find a tuberculosis test in such a large city but i actually had a lot of trouble there too um it seemed to me that the only places that were offering them were uh, like your last caller said uh kind of these private travel clinics um and so that's what i ended up doing that was my option uh and it cost 75 dollars for the first round with the scratch and then the return appointment it was 40 for the verification of results um for what it's worth, I just wanted to call in and share that. Um, it seems, I don't know if, if uh, family doctors offer this test, but it didn't seem so to me. Um, now, that's another province, but there it is.
1: Well, I appreciate you sharing your own experience. So. Uh, I'm going to follow up with public health during the 10 o'clock news to find out exactly what's going on. If they're not testing any longer in public health offices, there's got to be a reason why. I mean, if Mm -hmm. you are required to work in one healthcare setting or another, for instance, or to even enroll in a personal care attendant course and you have to have a TB test done – you would think that if all these mandatory requirements are floating around, that the government would provide a close-by where people live, as opposed to the gentleman earlier driving in and out of St. John's a couple of times for something that's required to join the ranks of healthcare professionals, something that I'm not quite understanding here, but I will follow with public health and see what I can find out.
0: Sounds great. Thanks a lot.
1: Appreciate the time, Steve. Hey,
0: have a good day. You too, Take buddy. Care. Bye-bye.
1: Yeah, because you know, I've had a couple of people chime in via email and otherwise saying, they got a TB test done. At the public health office where they live, not that long ago, maybe a couple, three years ago. So if there's something I'm missing, and government has, you know, resorted to going, uh, people going to an international travel agency or to go see June at Catalyst Health Solutions, what have you. There's got to be more to it than I totally uh, that I understand at this point. Because if you got to have it to be a healthcare professional, then you would think that would be part of the parcel of the government offering. All right. Uh, melissa dawes in the queue she's one of the parents that was at the protest outside of frank roberts junior high yesterday we'll hear from melissa some uh friendly heads up and advice for a safe may two four weekend then we're going to talk crown lands, come home here whatever you want to talk about don't go away welcome back to the show let's go to line number seven good morning melissa you're on the air
6: good morning patty um You'll have to forgive me now. I'm pretty nervous here at this. This is not something I normally do. (laughs) You just go ahead and take your time. Go right ahead. Uh, Yeah, I was calling. Um, I'm a parent of a student at Frank Roberts, and um, I was part of the uh, protest yesterday in support of my student and the conditions of the school. And uh, mostly, I guess I wanted to call to bring uh, the audience attention to these uh, health reports that were published on the school website, anyone is free to go read them.
2: Mm-hmm.
6: And uh, personally, um, I, I know Minister Hagee referred to these uh, inspections as commendable, but as a parent reading these reports, I don't feel they're to be very commended. Um, I read
1: the report, Melissa. Give the listeners an idea of what the report says.
6: Yes, so uh, the, the first report, um, I'm not sure if it's dated March 10th or May 10th. It's, it's handwritten, so it's very hard to read. But it's from the province. It's the School Environmental Health Inspection Report. Mm-hmm. And um, I'll just quickly read through it. Um, Rodent issue confirmed by the principal. Terminix on site, remediating ongo- remediation ongoing, trap set throughout the school, chicken wire and spray foam in all holes, kitchen, school, lunch, all food kept in containers and or fridge, home economics room, food removed. Staff should use appropriate PPE when cleaning rodent droppings. Note, children eating in classrooms and hallways create extra cleanup for staff. If rodent droppings are noted on desks in the classrooms, sanitize surface before students enter. And then the second report is the Occupational Health and Safety Report, and um, in that report, they issued four orders, um, general duties, an occupational health and safety program required uh, under Section 36.1 of the Act shall be signed and dated by the employer and person or persons responsible for management of the employer's operations in the province and shall include written work procedures appropriate to the hazards and work activity. The employer must develop a written safe work procedure for the following tasks cleaning rodent droppings. A copy of this procedure shall be forwarded to the office for review. Um, Order number two um, we're set to. Um, the employer shall provide a copy of all service records from Terminix for 2023 and an action plan from Terminix detailing the strategy to deal with rodents moving forward. Order number 3, an employer shall ensure that all there is appropriate circulation of clean and wholesome air in a workplace in accordance with standards established by, and I'm not sure what these abbreviations are for, A-S-H-R-A-E and ACGIH. I really don't know. And then the fourth duty, all employers shall ensure, so far as r- is reasonably practicable, that all building structures, whether permanent or temporary, excavation, machinery, workstations, places of employment and equipment are capable of withstanding the stresses likely to be posed upon them. And then it goes on to say they should list all areas where active leaks take place and provide an action plan, including timelines, detailing what is to be done to address the leaks. So, I mean, I wouldn't consider it commendable. It's not horrible, but it's... It's nothing to brag about. Um, I, I know you mentioned at the top of the show about air quality tests. I, I wasn't sure that air quality tests were even performed. Um, the report doesn't seem to indicate that they were. Um, but the biggest issue, and, and I think Frank Roberts is just that school is just a, one example, and I, I think there's neglect among. The entire school system. I think all schools are being neglected. I don't think they're receiving the proper maintenance that they should to prevent these kinds of horrible problems is being experienced at Frank Roberts, and I'm sure other schools
1: as well. Well, I can remember back when my boys were going to Vanier Elementary, and then Minister of Education Darren King and I met at the school for an interview when I was on Out of the Fog some years back, and we were talking about air quality in school then. So I'm sure it hasn't improved measurably since then now we can talk about the air purification units that are in every classroom and that was uh, that was as a result of course of covid being Mm -hmm. present in schools but i think air quality has long been a concern so let's just go through some of the the general back and forth here on this so the minister And CEO of the school district, Terry Hall, said, it's not a rat problem, it's a mice problem. What do you say, what what does your child say and her friends, or his or her friends?
6: Well, everyone in the school refers to them as rats. Um, I personally don't care if they're rats or mice. Either is a problem to me, regardless of what kind of rodent it is. Um, I know, well, I can give you a little bit of a timeline. Um I'm fortunate enough my, my child communicates with me pretty well so I get a lot of the stories and a, a lot of them are coming from teachers not students and uh, back, back in November the school had a sewage backup and my, my child is a, he's a student in the eighth grade and the eighth grade is on the bottom floor of that school so the backup affected where he learns and when this happened I I think he messaged me sometime in the afternoon, it was on a Friday. It was so bad, water was seeping into classrooms and instruction continued. The children weren't even moved upstairs out of the problem. And by the end of the day, it, it couldn't even be avoided. They had to walk through this dirty water that was coming into the school. So the weekend passed, he went back in on the Monday. The place still stank. There were stains on the walls probably a few inches up the wall. There was plastic put in front of the lockers, I guess, to keep the water from going into the lockers. It wasn't properly cleaned. So he called me first thing and we went down and picked him up and brought him back home from school. And many other children affected by this as far as I know also went home from school that day. Uh, the school issued a, a mass email to the parents telling them there was no issues. Everything was cleaned up, all hunky-dory. But it seems to me that it never really got professionally cleaned until that Monday night because when my son returned Tuesday mornings, the stains were gone, and he could smell the cleaners in the school. So it, it gives me a bit of a, a bad taste, you know, to, you know, how how, how can we be sure of what we're being told. And and I think a lot of the problem, I know schools are pretty, uh, I guess, you know, they're closed doors, they're not publicly accessible buildings, and I understand that for the safety of our children and everything, but I think that leaves them exposed to being the first places to get neglected and I really feel that they are getting neglected and I think you know all these beautiful new schools that have been going up over the past few years and are going up ongoing there needs to be some kind of a a plan in place to properly keep them maintained just like you would your home I mean if you get a leak you fix it you you know if your foundation cracks you fix it up you don't just let it go and go until you're faced with so many holes that you can't keep any living creature out of the place anymore.
1: Sure, yeah, I mean preventative maintenance always costs less in the long run. Uh, Last one before we go. So the school's built in 1969. There's some 660 students uh, in the school now. What was it originally designed for? How many students? How overcrowded is it? Do we have numbers?
6: Uh, I honestly don't know anything about the crowding issues and I can't really speak on the overcrowded part of it. I mean my My child doesn't really complain much about that, and most of what I get comes from my child. Um I'm just more concerned with the maintenance and the the health issues. Um I mean, when I went to school, we had big classes. The higher grades, the classes were big, and, and you know schools, I think pretty well all over the metro have the same crowd issues. I know it's, uh, you know, it's inconvenient to not have a cafeteria and things like that, but I I went through school too and it was much like that. So I can't really speak much on the overcrowding and, and I mean I can't really say I'm not so much someone fighting to, you know, tear down the school and build a new one because i mean sure if this school is beyond repair that's what has to be done but can this school be saved? i don't think fifty odd years is a long life for a building and like i said if these places were properly maintained they shouldn't be this deplorable at at this time they should last for fifty years more and i just don't think the proper maintenance is happening to give these buildings the lives that they deserve
1: like I mean, the province is right in saying even if they committed to a new school, that would be years down the road. Very likely yeah. before it was open. So I it's what could be done to now. yes.
6: <laughs> Maurice. Right. Yep. So, but that—that's just my my concerns. And like, like I said, I think these health reports anybody can go look at them. I don't think you'd want your kids in that. And I don't think Frank Roberts is the only schools with these problems. And I think serious things need to be done in terms of proper maintenance. Uh, I mean uh, they're in the schools and 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 simple things like lights, I, I mean, my son has been sending me pictures of evidence of late and they're all so dark and dim and his response is, oh well, only three lights work in this room and simple things like that. Uh, the, the air filtration systems, I know someone put up a picture of a really dirty filter. I mean, they were probably never cleaned since they got put in there, I don't know. Then all of a sudden on Monday, my son tells me, oh, they're taking out all the air systems now, so I can only assume they're cleaning them. I mean, why can't these simple things get kept on top of? You know, they just seem so basic and straightforward, and it all just seems to be neglected from the information that's coming my way from my child.
1: If the stories are accurate about how many students are at home repeatedly with respiratory issues, then it's a fair question about the frequency with which these filters are being either replaced or cleaned. I've seen a picture of one of the filters. There's no way it was doing anything but spreading around more pollutants. So I I appreciate the time this morning, Melissa. Thank you very much for this. Thank
6: you for hearing me.
1: My pleasure. Take care. Bye-bye. All right, bye-bye. Let's see. Time for the news when we come back. Adam's here to talk about crown lands we've had some good conversations with adam and of course greg french the lawyer in clarenville who really is our legal go-to voice on the crown lands issue what needs to be done to make it a little bit more manageable for uh, individuals whether it be in agriculture or simply your house seems to be on a piece of crown land unbeknownst to you and then we're talking about may 2-4 do not go away
7: Join Brian Medore weekdays at noon for a comprehensive update on news from every corner on all levels. Newsmakers, weather and more. Join us on your VOCM at noon.
1: Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number three. Say good morning to the owner of Bloomfield Farm. or pardon me. Outport Acres, which is in Bloomfield. That's Adam Furlong. Good morning, Adam. You're on the air. Morning, Patty. How are you? That's kind. You? Not too bad.
8: Looking forward to a long weekend. Looks like we're going to get a decent bit of weather. Me too. Bring it on. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I just wanted to continue the whole conversation surrounding crown lands and, and, and agriculture in this province. Um, yeah. So I mean, it comes as no surprise to you, or I'm sure to anybody. But you know, owning a business is hard, and operating a small business is hard. And I'm I'm okay with that. You know, I've, I've had to navigate a lot of issues in my business and in my industry since I started. I mean, I wasn't even in business a year when the whole Snowmageddon thing happened in St. John's and shut down all the farmers' markets and and restaurants and everything. And I navigated that fine. And then less than a month later, COVID started, which came with all kinds of other problems for farmers' markets and restaurants being shut down, and I navigated all that fine. Um, That's going to be part of my life for the rest of my career and you know, I just navigating issues in my industry and, and that's fine what's not fine is our government putting up unnecessary and nonsensical issues in, in the way to make things even harder for business owners and farmers in this province because I found a way to stay profitable and actually increase my profitability through all of the hurdles that have came into the world in the last three years but by far the biggest hurdle that i've had to face and i'm still facing is this whole crown lands nonsense with the government
1: and the orphan land or whatever the reference is. So just one more time in case people haven't heard you describe your issue regarding Crown lands. You were only talking about a plot of land, about 2.2 acres, and some 1.1 acres is part of this problem with an access road or what have you. Describe what you're dealing with.
8: Um, Yeah, so basically I went to buy 2.2 acres of land with a house um, in a private sale, and at the 11th hour before the... Uh, real estate transaction closed, Crown Lands contacted um, the previous owner's lawyer and said they can't sell that because they don't own it. It's ours. Regardless of the fact that they lived there for almost 50 years, the, the Crown claims that they own the land and they couldn't sell it. So that was in late summer of 2020. So I'm I'm almost three years now dealing with this. And at the end of the day, they agreed to let the previous owner's take their claim of half the land so that they could sell their house but the other half the land they're claiming belongs to the crown and then we come to find out that the land is not even accessible by their own definition it's orphaned land and and it can't be used for anything so it was all a big fight for no benefit to anybody
1: that's long been my question i suppose is what is government even trying to achieve here like i don't even get what the end game is or the end goal no, and
8: I don't either. I mean, they, like I said, it's almost three years now. They've they've literally been fighting tooth and nail to maintain control of a piece of land that they can't use for anything. They can't sell it to anyone because if you put in an application for any reason to Crown Lands to get that land, it would be denied. So there's, there's literally no benefit to the province, the government, the residents, anybody. But there's a lot of hindrance to me and the previous owners. And I mean, in a couple of weeks, beginning in June, so in two, three weeks' time, um, people in this province are going to be queued up for their day in court with the Crown to fight for their land. I I know that there are, are currently dozens of cases pending with this exact same issue. And the best case scenario for all of these people is that they'll go through the quieting of titles process, end up in court with the crown and win their claim to their land. But at the end of the day, they'll still have to spend somewhere in the neighborhood of $30,000 in legal fees that they should not have had to spend in the first place. But the more likely outcome is that they'll either lose a large portion or all of their land, at which time they'll still have to spend that. $30,000 in legal fees, but now they'll either have to forfeit their land and lose out on the value of that land that they would have had otherwise, or they'll have to submit an application to the Crown to buy back their own land at current-day market prices, which is obviously much more than they would have had to pay for 50 years ago or more. And the Department of Fisheries, Forestry, and Agriculture, who's responsible for Crown land seem more than content to just sit back and watch all this unfold, to to not do anything to address these issues and to just watch as private residents of this province spend tens of thousands of dollars of their own money each to fight for their land. And in many cases have their land taken away from them at the end of the day. I've been trying for years, but most recently I've been trying for months to talk to somebody in that department about these issues, and I get no response whatsoever. They've got no interest in even talking about it, let alone fixing it.
1: Something has to give. So, I mean, they can't have it both ways when trying to encourage more and more agriculture uh, projects getting off the ground and manageable and profitable. And, you know, I think if if anyone's interested in having a look at just how much Crown land is on the island in particular there's something called the land use atlas at the government's website just give it a google after the show and have a look there are huge swaths of land that are crown land there's going to be tons of people just like the diamonds and catalina and adam furlong and others that try to get a new business or go to sell their home just to find out that after decades of ownership and being on that land they've got to somehow fight with the government about the fact that it's crown land i did ask greg french about the individual the homeowner issue about okay Okay, so I've been paying property tax to the municipality for 40 years. Now I've got to go back and deal with the crown land issue. It could be lengthy and costly to acquire the title. There's something patently broken with the system. Add to it. Only problems in the country with two entities dealing with uh, crown lands as well, which just makes it, makes it sound and look extremely inefficient. So there's a lot to this for government to try to get at. Maybe part of it is they're not really sure what to do.
8: Yeah, and that's understandable because I don't really know what to do. And, I mean, Greg French, I've been having many conversations with him. He's got his suggestions for what is probably the best thing to do. But there is no ideal solution to this. I mean, the whole thing is just a a complete mess that there's no way that they're going to come up with a solution that just fixes it all. There's still going to be issues ongoing that they're going to have to address in
1: the future. Absolutely. Um, there's going to be dozens of diamonds and dozens of furlongs that have the exact same problem.
8: Yeah, so, guaranteed. Yeah. And e- even if they implement some fixes, there's still going to be some issues that come up. But I'm just. I'm. I really felt like we were starting to get a little bit of headway with this a few months ago leading up to that uh, special members resolution that they presented in the House of Assembly. But it just seems like that got shot down and now nobody even wants to talk to me about the issue anymore. And so it's it's extremely frustrating. And and the most frustrating part of it all for me is that, like, this was... (laughs) This was never part of my plan, right? I mean, I I never wanted to be on here talking with you so much about such a negative thing. I I just wanted to be farming. I never planned on having a a CBC reporter come here to create a news story about all the hardships that I've had to endure from the government. I wanted to have reporters come here to put on display what I've been able to accomplish here and display the sustainable approach to agriculture that I'm, I'm employing here on my farm. I mean, I called you about a year and a half ago to discuss how my business was the first and so far the only recipient in this province of the Desjardins Good Spark Grant. And I was going to make semi-regular calls to you to talk about good things of of what I'm doing here and try to be a positive voice in sustainable agriculture in this province. And instead, I've been on here having semi-regular conversations with you about nothing but negative things, and I'm just beating my head against the wall because nobody in the government could be bothered to make things better.
1: It's it's truly really remarkable. You made a brief mention of the private members' resolution that was tabled by Pleamn Forsey. A lot of the focus on Article 17, and it got roundly rejected. No pushback, or pardon me, no commentary coming from the government about where some of the gaps were in the uh, PMR. Nothing about possible amendments. Nothing about taking it to you know forming some sort of committee to deal with this crown lands kerfuffle, which is going to be a story for a long time unless the government figures out how to try to make it better. I don't think it's ever going to be perfect but certainly there seems to be some short-term fixes that will make it more manageable anyway i'm at a loss on this one
8: yeah absolutely i mean they they could if, if anybody had any interest in doing it they could certainly make some changes that would make it more manageable to sort out this issue but like i said i mean they've just got absolutely no interest in it from every every experience that i've had with them they don't they don't have any plans to even address the issues whatsoever, let alone implement any policy directives or anything that would fix
1: things. Appreciate the time. As frustrating as it is, Adam. Thanks, Patty. Take care. Have a good weekend. You too, buddy. Bye-bye. Adam Furlong, he owns Upport Acres out in Bloomfield. Before the break, we're going to 8. Barry, you're on the air.
9: Good morning, Paddy. Thanks for taking my call. No prob. Patty sending out a, a bouquet this morning to none other than yourself. I listened to your show last night on the uh, rebroadcast and uh, listen to you talk to that gentleman who's down on his luck and he uh, a medical issue and you got him a uh, a bed or a couch patty. Kudos on you, Patty. I mean, you, know, you say that this is not on you, but you're the front man. You're leading the, you're, you're the charge and doing a lot of good for a lot of people there, Patty. i got to say, buddy.
1: Uh, I appreciate it. You know, I just uh, i am hoping that I don't come back to work on Tuesday talking about headlines with more fires or someone drowned or there was highway collisions that caused uh, loss of life. Those are the things we try to avoid. And like I tried to say, it's not in an effort to be preachy because that's not my intention here. It's just sometimes when... Someone you hear someone talk about well, bit about safety. You know, I know you're not obliged by law to wear the life jacket, but to have one in the boat, maybe flick it on, maybe keep the speed down on the highway. You know, put down the phone, whatever it takes to be as safe as possible. Because this weekend notoriously has been a potential problem, so let's try to avoid it best possible.
9: Yes, yeah, so and now that I got you buttered up, Patty, let's talk about that. <laughs> <laughs> Go right ahead. Uh, Yes, it is May 24th weekend. And uh, so next week or so, uh, too, Patty, is National Boat Safety Week. I just like to say to everybody, have a safe and safe, successful and uh, fun holiday weekend, and indeed for the summer. But just keeping in mind, like you just mentioned, Paddy, whatever it is that you are doing underwater, always wear your life jacket. It's the most important thing that you can do for yourself and for your family. Uh, for you know, boating season is about to begin as well, so you should have your boat safety card with uh, taking that course. You know all the stuff that you're supposed to have on board safety equipment. Uh, good rule of thumb is to um, you know, check your check your uh, boat and engine and all that. To before the season starts. One of the biggest common problems of uh, breakdown Daddy, with uh, our boats, is uh, running out of gas, believe it or not. And for that, we we advise that three-thirds will have a third for the trip out, a third for the trip back, or a third in reserve to do whatever it is you might want to do extra uh, out there.
1: Yeah, and you know, one that people sometimes get caught with, maybe just an oversight. Out in boat, you know, especially if you're just working off an outboard motor, make sure you have a couple of oars <laughs> you can save yourself an awful lot of grief and problems because I, I hear those stories all the time, even from some of my buddies who are veterans on the water. And every now and then they say, man, what did I do? I forgot to flick the oars in. Next thing you know, you ran out of the gas, and it's a long haul, swimming, dragging your aluminum boat back to your home, back to your wharf. Anyway. I uh, appreciate the... Uh, indeed, not indeed, when you're
9: talking about the gas, uh, it's a good point, too, but the, uh, put, make sure it is in the boat before you put, put the boat out. That is, there's hundreds of, hundreds of safety tips to do, you know, but I think it all comes back to the uh, same thing, and that is how be important to wearing your life jacket.
1: I'm really unsure of the logic behind mandating by law you have a life jacket per person in the boat, but you don't have to wear it. Like It just sounds like we've gone halfway.
9: Hey, that's something that I, more than anybody else, would like to see changed. Uh, you know, same thing with the ATVs. you got to wear a helmet now. It's all for your safety. And, you know, people may say, well, why do I need to wear a life jacket? I'm not going to drown. I'm not going to get wet. And this and that. But, you know, one of these days it may come down to you having to face that situation and the fact that the law is already in place that, that makes you wear it. It will save your life, or it could save your life. And, uh, you know, with having a life jacket for the guys if have it in the boat and not wear it, that's just foolishness. All of that. I think the change is coming, though, Harry. I think the change, not legally change, change, but the change in attitude, and that's coming with our kids. And uh, and we're telling our kids to wear life jackets. And our kids are looking at us saying, "Man, Dad, why are you telling me to wear a life jacket when you're not wearing your one yourself?"
1: Dad wouldn't be long hauling me out of the boat if he saw me out there without a life jacket on. And the one, one more, one last one is if you are a great swimmer that doesn't matter it does not matter one of my best buddies lost his dad uh, to a drowning incident who was a top quality athlete a superior swimmer and he drowned so just because you think you're a great swimmer does not mean that you're at no risk if you happen to go fall out of the boat or whatever happens to cause you in, to be in the water don't use that as some back of your mind reason why no life jacket for me uh appreciate yeah, this barry sure. and last word to you before i have to go
9: Yes, thank you, Patty, absolutely. And the, <clears throat> wearing left light is so important. And another point, to, Patty, for talking about swimming, uh, you know, you shouldn't go swimming alone. You, you follow a trip plan and let somebody know where you're going. Avoid areas like that flat, right, like the, that uh, uh, river down it takes that uh, takes fatalities almost every year. And uh, if you so, – look, like, uh, fellas at our age now, Patty, and forgive the term, at our age, we think we still got a lot of it. <laughs> Indeed, we probably don't, as we realize. But uh, I'm going up for a swim, and I used to swim across that pond years ago. And I'm going to go for a swim now, and I can do it. I get halfway out there, and I, I start running out of steam. I'm up to getting a bit cold. Now I'm in trouble. Well, you know, it, that's why you should wear your jack- life jacket. If you're so vain as that and you don't want to wear it, Here's a possible solution. It's a reality too, Paddy. Tie a tie a string around like you. I can tie it around your uh, tie it around your waist. If you do need it, if you get out there and you do need it. All you gotta do is then pull towards yourself and you're, you're in a lot better shape.
1: Yeah, we used to swim in Nairy's Pond all the time. still do myself and Jack uh, over the summer. I used to be able to swim from the uh, right across that pond and up and down the length of it. And, buddy, now I'm lucky for people who uh, know Nairy's Pond. I can barely swim from our old wharf over to the rock and people will know where that is. And it's not that lengthy a swim, but that's about as far as I can go these days. I appreciate you your time, call? Barry. Have a nice weekend.
9: What, what do you call a honey that can't make bee can what do you call a bee that can't make honey?
1: I used to be. <laughs> Thanks, man. See you better. All right, buddy. You have a great weekend. You too. Bye bye. All right, let's get a break in. When we come back, we're gonna talk a little snow crab and apparently it's World Family Doctor Day. Nancy's there to talk about that. Don't go away. Welcome back. Let's go line number one so to the interim director at C interim executive director at C N L. That's Ryan Cleary. Hi Ryan, you're on the air.
7: Uh, good morning patty do you and your listeners thanks for taking the call sir it's not uh, interim executive director it's executive director
1: yeah for some reason there's interim on my screen but i've always introduced you as the executive director so there you go welcome to the show
7: thanks a lot patty patty um i'm calling obviously about uh, the tangle with snow crab uh, i listened to greg pretty of the ffaw wednesday um at the news conference that the, the union had, and I heard a clip again Thursday morning, yesterday morning on VOCM News. In that clip, Greg Pretty said that the competition bureau should come in and investigate the lack, lack of competition in the province, in the fishery, and it should, Patty. The competition bureau should investigate. Greg Pretty is absolutely right. We agree on this. Enterprise owners can't move between buyers. Enterprise owners can't truck out fish. Processors can't truck in fish. Trip limits, fishing schedules, take it or leave it at 220. You've heard about uh, fishermen saying they're held hostage. Can't vote on prices. Can't strike. You've heard words like cartel. We've been hearing about cartel going back 30 odd years to the late of the uh, to, to the days of the late John Efford. Petty. My point for calling is this: I don't know if Greg Pretty knows this. He's fairly new to the job. But in terms of the Federal Competition Act, one of the few industries in Canada excluded from the act is the fishery, more specifically the pricing of fish. The system of fish pricing in this province, final offer selection, is actually excluded from Section 4 of the Competition Act. So an investigation by the Competition Bureau would be useless. Now, last year, there were amendments to the Competition Act. I wrote the prime minister, I wrote Justin Trudeau in May of 2022. We asked him to include fish pricing, fish pricing in the act with those amendments. Um, we haven't heard back. We didn't hear back. Again, that was a, a, a year ago, but uh, it's, it's one thing to ask the competition to uh, – bureau to investigate, and they absolutely should investigate. But when you have the system of fish pricing in this process excluded from the act – Uh, Again, it's absolutely useless. And I was, to be honest, I was kind of flabbergasted that Pretty didn't know that.
1: Well, I mean couple of things. So that type of investigation by the Competitions Bureau when I heard it uh, referenced it's one of those things that sounds good but I don't think it has any teeth because review what and apply to what legislation. <laughs> so if that's absent then this is more an exercise in futility or optics than it is in any pragmatic approach to fixing things. And yeah, that's
7: exactly what I thought, Patty.
1: You know, and you know if someone thinks I'm wrong, fair enough, and I just very well may be, but I couldn't see the link between settling how we establish price versus some sort of competition Bureau intervention here you know the whole and some of this is absolutely the authority of the provincial government here if they want to allow uh, harvesters to truck their product out they can just do it. I mean, that's that's just a decision they'll make based on the politics of what side they think they get the most support from or what biggest clout comes. I think they probably are misreading the tea leaves here, a bit of uh, erroneous math going on. But if we're talking about actually fixing the process, the Competition Bureau is not even part of the puzzle as far as I can tell.
7: Patty, the FFAW also came out yesterday and said that they hope that the province stays these are their words, true to their word about implementing a pricing formula next year for snow crab. Right now we have pricing formulas for lobster and halibut for, for for lumpfish. First off, Patty, the problem with a pricing formula, and we've seen this with lobster, I've spoken to you about about lobster on your show about the weakness with the formula. That unless the formula is based on actual market receipts there 's no way to tell whether owner operators are getting a fair market share so processors won 't release the receipts the province won 't force them to show the receipts so um, so we can 't move forward it 's no good to have a formula unless you have it's, unless it 's based on sales receipts that has to be that that has to be acknowledged right up front so that 's another thing in terms of moving forward um, and i 'll repeat there, I said this to you before as well, Patty. there needs to be a second a sweeping invest there was an investigation last year into pri- into the pricing uh, system it, w- it was three months long it solved nothing it, There were a few tweaks that didn 't do anything to prevent the absolute chaos we have uh, this year. So right off the bat, there needs to be a complete review of the pricing system, of competition, uh, of the entire pricing system in the fishery. That that needs to happen. The fact that the FFAW is not putting that front and center is going right away to a uh, a formula base, not even talking about uh, sales receipts is uh, i don't know where they're coming from patty
1: yeah the sales receipts thing I, I understand that concept too but of course they may have some different tentacles out there where they might be able to squeeze a few extra shekels out of one buyer or another south of the border say for instance if we use the uh the uh, northeastern united states as the hub for the crab here's my thoughts and i was reminded by a fish harvester yesterday that i probably don't know much about the industry i try but anyway let's just give it another shot so we all try patty like, yeah some of this is just math right so If you're going to apply any market formula or any market type of policy, what the market can bear, if we're going to try to get it closer to right, because the market is what the market is, that's been the long, the confusing issue here regarding the solidarity of of, a all the boats being tied up. The market's not budging, regardless of what the union or any individual harvester says or does. So if there was a more defined percentage of market share and an understanding of what the market actually looks like, I think we alleviate some of these to-and-fros and tit-for-tats and and, uh, tie-up and all the rest of that's going on because there was a big fluctuation between what the harvesters got versus the percentage of market share versus this year. If there was a bit more of an understanding what that would look like, you know, say 5% variable o- either side, then we'd probably avoid some of this because the market couldn't care less what anybody in this province says about it, whether it be Greg Pretty or Terry Ryan or Ryan Cleary or me or the Premier or the Minister of Fisheries, the market simply does not care. So if you had a more defined divvy, maybe that would help.
7: You're, you're right, Patty. You need to, okay, let's say you did have a percentage of market share. The only way to verify that is with the sales receipts. And if the processors won't lay they, them on the table, they won't lay them on the table, for example, with lobster, and the panel has said they must, they should, it's the only way to verify a fair market share. If there are no sales if it's not based on sale receipts, it's not going to work. It's as simple as that.
1: What do you think gets revealed by the
7: sales receipts? Honest question. How much? How much the crab? How much the seafood is selling for into the market, and 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 then that way there's it's complete transparency. Everybody's on the same page. Everybody has trust. Everybody knows what they're getting. But right now there's no transparency. There is zero. It's beyond. It's negative trust. The only way to get around that is to lay the information on the table with sales receipts. That's it. If you're going to go with a percentage, you have to know what it sells for
1: if the say for instance if i go to seafood news or other market watchers out there and they say that the market well the last time i had a look was at 475 american do we not trust that number or is there some fluctuations that might happen from state to state or country to country because those market watchers are reporting a number so is that a number that has any veracity or do you trust the number I don't I don't trust the
7: number, Patty, because it's a US number. It, it's the number on sales going into the States. So much of our seafood is not going into the States. It's right. still going to Japan, it's going to South Korea, it's going to Asia. So those numbers are reflective of into the US market, but not the entire world market. Sure, but in my so understanding is so? J-
1: not completely no. Japan is somewhere between five and ten percent of crap. Yeah, and Russian fla-
7: Russian crab has absolutely flooded that market, flooded the entire Asia market, but there's still room there for, for Canadian seafood, for Newfoundland and Labrador snow crab. And so your question is, do I trust Erner Barry? I, I trust the number that it's reflective, but is that exactly where the where the seafood is going? I don't know.
1: Should the processors not have the latitude to sell where they want for as much as they can get?
7: Absolutely. Absolutely. It's a fair, open, uh, transparent market. Absolutely. But inshore harvesters, the inshore fleet, are entitled to a fair market share. And if we're going with a government-manipulated system, unless it's based on sales receipts, there can be manipulation in that system. So unless you have a completely fair, system well then you've got to go to auctions you got to go to an auction system you got to go to outside buyers uh, in the absence of that it has to be a fair system and this final offer selection is not a fair system than w- the way that it works obviously
1: it would also have to include every hand that the product goes through before it has a final retail price and f- retail price can mean a bunch of things it can mean how much you can buy it for at a Walmart or a grocery store or how much you pay for it on a white uh, tablecloth in New York City so, you know, you got to factor in a bunch of different complicated issues before you get to the actual – to be able to translate exactly what a sales receipt says. So, and you know what, Patty? The buck stops with the provincial government. This entire um, final offer
7: selection system is, is a product of the provincial government. The, the buck stocks, stops with the provincial government. And there's a famous Ronald Reagan quote. Uh, I'm sure you're probably uh, familiar with it, Patty, but we're looking to government for a solution where government is the problem. That's what it comes down to here. And, And from my perspective, fishermen seem a little confused about where to direct their frustration. Yes, the FFAW and, and how these uh, negotiations have been handled has been, has been a circus, has been ridiculous, but from my perspective, it all goes back to the province. This is a legislated, uh, this is a legislated system of fish pricing, legislated by the provincial government, and it has completely failed us.
1: If I had uh, my druthers, which I don't, is I think I would 100% expand the opportunity for Harvester to sell wherever they want, number one. So if a processor, if we're talking about competition, and I know that I can put a, a a vat of ice in the back of my truck and pull up at the intersection of the Salmon Air Line and the Transcanda Highway, sell the crab for whatever I'm willing, whatever I'm able to get for it, and maybe, just maybe, if the plants want to be profitable and keep their uh, crew and workers on staff, they might be forced to pay more simply because me, driving into to the Cabin down at Deer Park might be able, willing to pay more than the harvesters can get from the processor.
0: Patty, I couldn't agree with you more.
1: I believe in a
7: 100% open and transparent market. Whatever this provincial government touches does not turn out well. Yes. Yeah.
1: There's got to it does be, not work out well it's got to be careful that we don't decimate one side or the other though right I mean that's where the balancing act is really tightrope walking on a razor's edge there's no upside to the industry if all of a sudden the processors are battered to the point where they leave or they just shut down or they're no longer profitable and I know that's an exaggeration that might never manifest itself but you've got to consider these things when we try to change policy and amend legislation uh, last word to you Ryan before I go
7: Okay, the last word to me, uh, I'll leave it at fair. Whatever system we have in place needs to be fair. Fair to the harvester, fair to the processor. The system that, in pla- that is in place right now is not fair.
1: Patty, have a great May 24 weekend. You too. Take care. Thank you. Right, you're welcome. Bye-bye. Ryan Cleary, the executive director at CNL. Uh, will I take Wade and come back for Nancy? Yes, why not? Let's go to line number two. Wade, you're on the air. Good morning,
9: Patty. Happy uh, start of May 24 weekend.
1: The very same to you.
9: Patty, I'm calling this morning. I'm on my way to Catamaran Park uh, to uh, get my trailer and everything ready, and I had a stepladder in the back of my truck. Unfortunately, I didn't have it tied down, but when I got halfway up, uh, we looked in the back, and I noticed that it was gone. So, between Grandfowls and, and Badger, I would say, if anybody sees uh, or picked up a Eight foot uh, aluminum step ladder. I appreciate it if they touch base with me.
1: Well, I hope someone picked it up and gets it back to you. Want to give out your number, Wade? Yeah, it's 709 486
9: 3343. We went back to so far as Grand Falls and we took our time coming along the shoulder, rolled back to Badger. We didn't see it, so somebody obviously picked it up, I guess. And if they did, uh, I would appreciate it if they'd, uh, like, say, get in contact with me.
1: I hope they do, Wade. Good luck. Uh, thank you, sir, and you uh, you have a good, safe, and a happy uh, May 24 weekend, sir. Same to you and yours, buddy. Take care. You too. Bye-bye. All right, Nancy, appreciate the patience. We're talking World Family Doctor Day right after this. Weekday mornings from 5.30 to 9. Jumpstart your day with Jerry Lynn Mackey and Ben Murphy. Newsmakers, traffic, weather, and more during your VOCM morning show. Welcome back. All right, let's go to line number three. Nancy, you're on the air.
10: Uh, Hi, Mr. Daly. I'm calling to remind everyone that uh, May 19th is World Family Doctor Day, and uh, it's celebrated by the World Health Organization and also by the um, Canadian College of Physicians. So I just wanted to make us all aware that it might be nice if you have an opportunity to recognize the um, exceptional efforts that uh, our family doctors put off on our behalf and to Although we know we need many more of them, we want to appreciate the ones we have so that they will at least stay and continue the hard work that they're doing.
1: I certainly appreciate mine. I went an awful long time without having a family doctor. Lucky enough to be in at the Collaborative Care Clinic on Monday Pond, uh, Monday Pond Road, and really, really like my doctor. Very thorough funny. and comprehensive, and you can tell that she's got all my best intentions it, at heart. So I'm I'm really pleased with the experience. But now, you know, when I didn't have a family doctor for so long, now I'm being constantly poked and prodded and tests and tests and tests, <laughs> and tests and tests, which is a good thing, I suppose. I actually had a look at the site before we came back to take your call. So it's not only the uh, 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 WHO, but there's something called Wonka, that's actually part of this. I don't know what that's the acronym
10: is. Uh, that's the World uh, World Organization for Health, yes.
1: And they talk about the campaign pillars, and these are important. So one thing your family doctor is, is your greatest champion, is your advocate yes. in the system. And then some right. of the that you know we talk about a lot in this program a couple of things you know so it's not only family doctors that are talking about but uh, primary care teams so they're talking about the integrated care they're talking about patient-centered care which is obviously you can't get it anywhere else but with your family doctor or nurse practitioner and let's not leave them out and no. then the most important one for me is continuity of care you get to know your doctor they get to know you they know some of the things that you may have struggled with whether it be with your weight or your diet or your blood pressure or your cholesterol they st- they will very quickly have a good understanding of who you are why you are in the state you are whether as healthy as a horse or have some struggles so those are some pretty important things
10: Yes, they absolutely are, and it's uh, such a great benefit when you go back to the doctor and you don't have to start off at the beginning and go through everything that's happened before because he or she already knows you. Uh, they are certainly the foundation of healthcare, care, and they are the one who links us all to more specialized care if that is necessary. They're the ones that the reports come back to, and they're the ones who coordinates uh, everything you need. So um, we can help celebrate World Family Doctor Day if uh, we wish by going on Twitter hashtag uh, thank you family docs or hashtag uh, World Family Doctor Day and just send a little message to encourage them and that we appreciate all they do for us
1: and of course people will be speaking to or yelling at the radio that I wish I had a family doctor we know yes. that and we wish yes. that everyone had a family doctor I want to add one yes. more component to this and this is something that it 's a little bit you know not the hands-on clinical stuff but it's the what they're referring to as the holistic approach they not only will be able to evaluate your physical health but also emotional social and psychological well-being a lot of Uh the references into maybe some uh, appointments with a therapist or a psychologist that could indeed be instigated because your family doctor recognized that might be something you need it is a
10: very unique role it's they're all things to all people So thank you for taking my call, and I just wanted to put it out there because I wasn't sure how many people were aware that today is World Family Doctor Day. Were you a family doctor by chance, Nancy? No, but I have one in my family.
1: Well, I'm glad you brought it up this morning because I was not aware, but I'm glad we had a chat about it.
10: Thank you for taking my call. Bye for now.
1: Bye-bye. World Family Doctor Day, and yes, one thing on the family doctor front that I do get a bit confused by is, you know, the difference between what the NLMA says and the research company they brought in to try to figure out how many people don't have a family doctor, the last numbers we heard were 136,000 people in the province did not have one. The province then says, well, no, we think the number is more like 50,000. Seeing as how we have a billing system at MCP, should we not be able to come up with a bit more of an accurate number versus somewhere between 136,000 and 50,000? Sort of seems like a strange one there. And there's actually a new healthcare position that's being established in the province. And this might be of interest to one doctor who calls about his concern with the number of MCP audits that he faces. It's called a manager of physician relations. It's part of the shared family medicine agreement or partnership between the province, the Department of Health Community Services, and the medical association. So one of the key focus areas here, apparently, is to help provide the members of the Medical Association more information about MCP adjudications, how to provide physicians to understand reasoning for a decision, and how to avoid annual, or pardon me, how to avoid MCP adjudications in the first place. That might be helpful to, the doctor's name is West Tyson, right Dave? That's called on those particular MCP matters? All right, uh, let's try to get the break on time. When we come back, recycling. All right, don't go away. Welcome back to the show, let's go Line number 1, Lee, you're on the air Good morning, line number 1, you're on the air Nope, on hold Let's go, line number 2, good morning, Betty Fitzgerald, you're on the air <laughs> Betty, are you there? Oh, man, Line number 2, Betty Fitzgerald, you're on the air Maybe not. I'm try one again. Betty's on hold. Oh, so, okay, so I'll try this way. Line number one, Betty, you're on the air. Hello. The hi there, Betty. Welcome to the show. Hi, Patty. How are you? And I'm my friend's at the OCM. Doing fine today. Thanks for asking. How about you?
11: Oh, I'm doing fine, Patty. Patty, I'm calling today uh, about the teleton that was held there at uh, all over Newfoundland and Labrador, certainly by the Saltwater Community Association to raise funds for the, a woman's shelter on the Bonavista Peninsula.
12: Yep.
11: And, uh, Teddy, i like to encourage people to get out and donate because uh, we had a lot of great entertainers uh, on, on last night on East Lincoln Rogers. And Mr. Ben Sillers. I Was there doing a movie, and he also spoke on how important the matter is to get a, a center air in this area because Sammy's one petty at St. John's Gander. And and that's a long way for people to have to go, right?
1: Absolutely. I did see the video that Ben Stiller shot of himself uh, encouraging people to get involved and make a donation. I thought that was pretty cool.
11: Well, so- all the entertainers were on last night, Petty on, on Rogers and on uh, Eastlink, and I'm sure they'll be running again sometime soon. And uh, if do- if anyone wants to donate, they can do- send it to donations.swca at com. If they want to use a credit card, they can send it to www.nlgiven.com. I I, I encourage people, Patty, to do so because the crime in the the most crime uh, that's reported in this area is domestic violence. And I think about all those women and children, Patty, that need help.
1: Well, of course, and we know that you know people will say there's also men that are victims of uh, domestic violence. That's true, but there's somewhere in the neighborhood of seventy percent are girls or women. So, yes. wh- what's the yes, do you also have an online uh, 50-50 or something going on? Did I hear that?
11: There was one petty, but that's over with. Okay. So, uh, now we're trying to telecon because uh, we had people like Rum Raggett, uh, Jenny Canook, uh, some local entertainers, Dennis Sisters, always a, a variety of entertainers who gave up their time, Patty, to try and help the people here on the Bona Vista Peninsula at the women's shelter for those in, in need
1: of it. Do you have a target goal in mind? Do you have an idea what it's going to cost? I guess not only to build but to operate?
11: Uh, well, the, the group do know how much is going to operate, but I think their goal for the Teleton was $50,000, Patty. Last I heard, they only had uh dollars or $5,000 uh, raised. I don't know what they raised since then. That was earlier last night when I called in and asked them, right?
1: Okay, so I'll spread the word here. I'll. I'll grab this link on the Saltwater Community Association website and send it around. And it has all the addresses for uh, e-transfers, and what have you. So we'll see what we can do to help on that front. Uh,
11: Certainly appreciate that, Betty. And if you ever come to Bonavista, look me up. You're always welcome there.
1: I, I appreciate that, Betty. Very quickly, I know we've, we talked a lot about your community. I've been in your community and done some work with some of the groups that are active on the volunteer front out there. Do you miss municipal politics at all?
11: Uh, well, Petty, first when I left, I did miss it, but not now. I'm out there still doing things in my community. I help new comers that come to my town to fill up in, in the community. I'm helping uh, any group that reaches out to me in any way. I try to help. I I don't stop very much, but I'm not mayor no more, and I I think that's for other people to do now. I've walked away from that. But uh, I do wish everybody the very best, because I want the best for this area. And I don't mean just my town. We have a lot of communities in this area, beautiful communities and I think we all should be working together to make it even more better.
1: Absolutely right. That's one thing that I really appreciated about uh, out in the Bonavista Peninsula. I can't remember what the term is they use for all the different volunteer groups that work together as opposed to work apart. It's really made a big difference out in your area. Uh, good to have you, have you on the show. Pardon me? Good be with Eddie.
11: All over Newfoundland we have a beautiful province and I'm proud to be a Newfoundlander and I certainly uh, wish the best for all of our province and I've got i got friends in all, mostly all communities because when I was with the m and board, I met a lot, lot of nice people that was also volunteers trying to make their communities a better place. So I'm reaching out to all the communities now and asking each and every Newfoundlander to please step up and give, listen, $1 up onwards It don't make any difference. Every dollar counts when it comes to, especially women and children. It's scary when you see children involved, right, and, and know that they could be hurt.
1: And we also know that some of the shelters are at capacity, which just really screams the prevalence of the problem that we have in the province and in the country. Uh, good to have you on the show, Betty. Hopefully, this helps raise a few funds. You too, Patty.
11: and you have a great day now. And like I said, if you ever come to Vanuvis, just give me a call.
1: Totally will. Thanks, Betty. Everybody. Oh, it's my number. Oh, yeah, I got your number. Okay, take care, Patty. You too, Betty. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Let's keep rolling here. Let's go to line number two. Lee, you're on the air. Good morning.
13: Good morning. Yeah, I called you last year about GFL, dumping garbage and cardboard in the same truck. Okay. seemed like they stopped, or at least they didn't do it at the same time. They're, They're back at it again now this year. So who, who controls uh, GFI? Who do they come under? The city of St. John's or prevention?
1: So um, I don't even know what GFL is. Is that a private company um, or is that the, the the city's own garbage Good for,
13: life. Good for life. They they, get, they do most of the recycling and garbage
1: pickups. Yeah, so... Uh, Outra- outside anyway. Okay, so wouldn't it Isn't be... This- <laughs> Wouldn't it be the case that even if they put the product in the same truck, when they arrive at the depot, they separate it at that point?
13: How can you separate it? It goes in the truck and you got a thing goes in and compresses it. I don't think the truck is that smart.
1: Well, I mean, there's all kinds of stuff gets thrown in a truck recyclables that eventually gets separated at some stage. Like if I went up to whatever that recycling outfit was on Portial Cove Road uh, just jumped out of my mind, they would separate at the point where it gets dropped off. I don't know, and I haven't seen the process. I haven't seen them squash the recyclables together, but...
13: Yeah, uh, if, if they're picking up recyclables only, but not garbage. Could be yeah. anything in the garbage.
1: So there, there's garbage and cardboard going in the same truck.
13: Yeah. Now, whoever is there... Whoever controls the the dump out St. out in Robinhood Bay, they got spotters. The spotters got to see that they're dumping cardboard, because the dumpster for cardboard is six by six by seven feet high, and he's full.
1: Yeah, because in my yeah. neighborhood, in my neighborhood, two different trucks come, so I'm not sure.
13: Yeah, but well, this, this is for a business. <clears throat> this is this is a business to are picking up from. Okay. Now yes, here in CBS we do have two different trucks. One comes for the recyclables, and one comes for garbage.
1: Mm-hmm.
13: But this is a the business; they get the big dumpsters.
1: I don't know. I can follow up with the city and the province, though. No problem.
13: I know because I I saw him.
1: I'm not a saying it's. Went not true. in and
13: picked up his the dumpster full of cardboard, put it in, backed up, and went over and picked up full one full of garbage.
1: Yeah, that makes no sense. If we're going to separate them upon dumping them, then we should probably separate them upon collecting them. That makes sense to me. And I can follow yeah. up. I can figure this out.
13: Now, I don't know Danny Green have often been said well, yeah, you know, we're saving this much from the landfill by recycling. But how much more would we save if we're in these big multi-million-dollar companies? Point taken. And the other thing is, uh, it seems like this Association for New Canadians... Uh, they've left out these uh, Ukrainian refugees. They're all there for the cameras when they came over and trying to get them over. But the past few months, we've made friends with a couple. They went out and bought a car, a Ford Focus, a second-hand one. And when their baby came along, they realized the car was too small. They paid $12,000 for the car. When he realized it was too small, he said, okay, we'll trade it in. We know we're going to lose a bit. When he went back to the garage, he said, no, I am gonna give you 5000 He said, that car was in an accident. He didn't bother telling him it was in an accident when he sold it. And that's where this association with New Canadians should be because a lot of these refugees, they haven't got a full uh, fluency in English regardless regards speaking or understanding it. And I know why it's like going to the garage. You probably, I don't know if you've experienced it. Last car I bought and I went there. And when you get to the final place, you start shoving papers, this and this and this and this and this. And one of them was walk away insurance. And you haven't got time to process anything while you're in the garage. And if you don't understand English very well, you can easily get taken in. When we got outside and got a chance to look at it, my wife said, what do we need that for? He said, "If something happens to you, I need still need the car." He says, "Okay, I'll we'll call and cancel it." I called the back to guy and canceled We want to cancel it. He said, "You can't do it." I said, "Why not?" No, he said, "Once uh, you're you supposed to say yes or no at the garage." I said, "It's written right in the policy. I got 30 days to cancel with no charge." He never read the policy. He had to go out and ask somebody else if they could refund my money.
1: Yeah, things can happen fast and furious in the business manager's office. There's no doubt about it, whether or not you're fluent yep. in English or not. Absolutely.
13: So if you're not fluent, these people are taking advantage of, being taken advantage of by your edges. Yeah, I suppose you know, they, should have been, they should have been told that a car was in an accident when you bought it.
1: Absolutely. I appreciate the time, Lee. Off to the news as I go. Okay. Take care. Thank you. All right, bye-bye. All right. I'll follow up on that uh, garbage and... Cardboard, all in the one mess. I mean, we're asking people to put it in separate dumpsters, and then we're just going to flick it in the same back of the same truck. You know, with the recycling issue though. Period. The the transparent bags—they seem to be working. So we've seen more recyclables being collected as recyclables, as opposed to prior to that, the estimate was that some 50% of what was in a dark garbage bag was recyclable, and included things like paint, and those types of things. So it's not only a hazard to the landfill contamination-wise, but it's also a safety risk for the city staff. In the city of Halifax, in 2017, when they implemented this uh, transparent bag, they saw within six months a 24% drop in waste volumes. So obviously, it is working. People don't like it because change is hard but it seems to work in Halifax looks like it's working here and of course it it saves us money as uh, the residents and property taxpayers the tipping fee for garbage versus recycling we're saving money and we're probably going to extend the life of the landfill so that makes sense to me all right let's go ahead and take a break for the news don't go away
0: every Saturday is perfect for a night at the cabin
1: the cabin party with Brian O'Connell Saturday night starting at 7 p.m. on VOCM welcome back to the show well since Lee called about his concern with garbage and cardboard going in the same truck, I've been told there's a, a, a solution, pardon me, an answer to what that might be. Henry's got it for us, live on the air on one. Henry, you're on the air.
12: Hi. You'll see him? Yes, sir. Yeah. Um, just calling about uh, I'm living out in a small community also. Uh, I had the same question. I went uh, to out to the truck and checked it out. There's actually two parts to the the truck that compresses the garbage and everything. Uh, When they throw it in, the recycled part was in the the back section and the garbage is in the front section. So it seems like it's thrown all into one, but it's not.
1: No, and that's what I've been told by several people since Lee called. So apparently yeah. two separate and distinct uh, compartments in the back of the truck makes all the sense in the world now that I hear it. Is
12: it. Definite, it is definite because I, I went out and watched it and I, I asked the same question. It looks like you're there, but they are but they're so used to giving it a fling, right?
1: Yeah, that makes all the sense in the world to me. So once, once Lee uh, hung up, I got a guarantee a dozen messages saying the exact same thing, which I was going to speak to when we came back, but I'm glad you did. Okay, thank you. Thank you, sir. All the best. Yeah. yeah, just makes sense, right? Two separate containers. Fair enough. All right, uh, let's go to line number four and say good morning to Dr. Holly Etchegare. She's an associate professor at Memorial University in clinical epidemiology. And Rebecca Potter is a registered nurse and a Ph.D. candidate. They join us on lines four and five. Good morning to you both. Welcome to the show morning good morning good morning to you so let's start with what you're doing it's a uh, another research study now being done regarding hereditary cancer you go ahead and start us off dr etrigary what are you trying to understand or achieve here
14: Sure, will do. Well, thanks very much for having us. First of all, I always appreciate the opportunity. This is, um, I guess it's the next study really in a program of research that a group of us are really quite passionate about thinking about how we can best provide care and in particular follow up and ongoing risk management to these families affected by the hereditary cancer syndromes. And so we're really wondering about the feasibility of establishing a registry for these families, and we're really curious about people's thoughts about some sort of a follow-up navigation model of risk management. What we know is that these families, these individuals, face lifelong cancer risks in multiple organs, often at younger ages, and the risks are often very high. So you can imagine there's a lot of uh, screening interventions treatments prophylactic surgeries appointments with specialists etc we know it works we have very good evidence that early screening and and intervention does work in these hereditary cancer syndromes but we also have to recognize that is quite burdensome for patients so we're actually wondering and in this study we're hoping to talk to patients to get their sort of ideas priorities preferences what do they think about that sort of follow-up model of care so very broadly speaking that that's what we're aiming to do.
1: So would this not, if the study says there is a need for this type of registry and the establishment of a nurse navigator, would that simply be a, an extension of what is already in place to help navigate once you've been diagnosed with cancer?
14: Yeah, great question. So, I actually think it could work in a similar way. We have evidence in the literature that the nurse navigation model uh, is quite beneficial in the context of cancer more broadly. So, it makes perfect sense to me to ask, well, why not try it with this very high-risk population? But surprisingly, there there's actually very little of that in the literature. It's a population of families that I don't know if it's, if it's because these hereditary cancer syndromes are considered rare, but we don't really have, across the country, by the way, generally speaking, not just in Newfoundland Labrador, we have very little in the way of a systematic sort of sustained and sustainable follow-up program. So my guess would be it would work in a similar way, but we don't know that yet, for sure. We don't have the evidence, I think, but I, I think there's no reason it couldn't.
1: Rebecca, you and Dr. Etchigary have done some interviews. I, I believe when I read the email, maybe 17. But talk about some real gaps in the data. What gaps are we trying to satisfy with this conversation?
3: Right. Well, I think what's interesting about our particular study is that this is the first time that we've branched out to some people who have tested positive for hereditary cancer genes other than Lynch syndrome and BRCA. And the thing is, the, the risk of cancer in those organs and what organs are affected differ for every different cancer gene. So it's been interesting to hear sort of the differences in people's experiences. Um, I guess one thing is that the people who are they have they don't have much trouble. Adhering to their risk, they either they are strong advocates themselves, so we assume that they are people who you know have a lot of agency and, and very on top of it. But even then, I guess I've been surprised by some of the loopholes that people have had to go through just to access recommended prevention. Um, or they had a family doctor or nurse practitioner who was very on topic because that's sort of who was responsible for managing your screening. So we know the issue is already with accessing a primary care provider in the province and even given how busy some of these providers can be. So there are definitely gaps where people can follow through. But I will say that when we propose this idea of a nurse navigator to them, A lot of people seem to be enthusiastic and they're giving us good ideas about what features should be included in that type of
1: model. Inside the world of hereditary cancer are there certain not only gaps in the data but certain mutations that have not been part of the interviews thus far and correct me if I'm wrong when I offer some of these cancers like I know adrenal gland and colorectal and brain and breasts there can be certain hereditary features there are there certain mutations or cancers that you'd like to have people involved who maybe you haven't spoken to yet?
3: Well, I'm really glad you asked that because that is part of <laughs> the reason why we wanted to come on today and say that because to date we had very little uh, representation from people who carry B 2 genetic changes, uh, very little N1, and actually very little BRCA variants, and we were sort of surprised by that. As well, we've spoken to a limited amount of people from... Central or Western, and we really would like to be able to capture the possible differences in these experiences because they are important variations and stories to be told to to get the narrative right.
1: So uh, correct me if I'm wrong once again, because I'm the furthest thing from a medical professional, but we saw this news story. It has nothing to do with your research about tampered eye medication and treatment for uh, macular degeneration, the leading cause of vision loss, irreversible vision loss. There's also some hereditary feature in some eye cancers. I know because I have friends who are are dealing with this and this type of screening, whether it be with melanoma or retinoblastoma, I think it is in children. So have Mm -hmm. we spoken to anyone on that front? Can you speak to that one in particular, simply because I have a, a relation who's dealing with it.
14: So I, I, maybe I can jump in, not that that's my area at all, Patty, but in this particular study, um, we're the, it's open to all of the hereditary cancers, and that includes any altered gene whatsoever that is related to hereditary cancers. So as Rebecca was saying, cdh one rad RAZ51C, PALB2, chek 2 MEN1, von Hippel, Lindell, et cetera. The eye disorders in particular are, you're right, not necessarily. Necessarily a part of this particular study, but certainly I know there's been work done in the province. Dr. Jane Green, which many uh, will recognize, of course, Jane's name, has been doing uh, work on the eye disorders for quite a long time. I actually think that if we look at genetic services more broadly, whatever the condition, the model of care in this country, including in this province, seems to be a condition develops and or you have a very strong family history, um, that means you're eligible for a publicly funded genetic test You get in, you speak to some great, wonderful, knowledgeable people here in the province who help you understand what that means, whether it's an eye disorder or hereditary cancer, et cetera. You're given a family letter, you're asked to go home, share that with your relatives, and by and large, you are left to your own devices um, to navigate that condition, to work with your family doctor, if you're lucky enough to have one, and those handful of specialists who are maybe directly related to your condition. But we, generally speaking, have no um, real follow-up system of care. People, It's very uh, fragmented, as we just described it across the country. So I think, I hope, that the findings from this study will actually be fairly transferable across many different conditions. That's my hope, and it's certainly the broader issue of how are we best utilizing limited resources to provide the best follow-up care we can so that I'll of these great advances we hear all the time in genetics and genomics and precision medicine and it's just continuing to grow. How do we ensure that across this country, and my concern, of course, is my province, <laughs> biased as I am, um, how do we make sure people have equitable access to all of that, and indeed have that follow-up care they need? So I, I hope it's gonna be transferable across disorders.
1: Regarding access, how? what's the approach or the thought given to proximity to services? Because it's one thing if I live in close proximity to the Health Sciences Center, or the H. Plus Murphy Center, or what about if I live in very remote, rural parts yep. of the problems and especially in Labrador, how do you incorporate those variances to the uh, th- to interpreting the data?
14: Yep. Look, it's why, as Rebecca just said, it's so critical that we get those perspectives, first of all, from people in Labrador. So I really hope some are listening today and will consider uh, uh, taking part. Of course, it's entirely voluntary, but we really do want to have that kind of representation. You will know, uh, Patty, as you and I spoke about a while back, we're uh, finishing up another study right now that's been talking to people about access and economic burden associated with the management of these hereditary cancers. And it's absolutely true. away you live uh, the more impact that can have because you do need to sometimes take time off work travel to St. John's to have your tests your screening your appointments etc so we have to think about that so I think what that's going to mean and what we're certainly open to open to hearing from patients who do uh, decide to talk to us is maybe we have to to think about different models of care so when we talk about the nurse navigator model um, could phone calls work could emails work could a patient portal work? What are some elements that people might be able to suggest to us, because we want to hear from them, that might help them you know, uh, access um, appointments they need to access, etc.? So some of this might be able to be done not in person, uh, which might help alleviate some of that additional access burden for those who are from outside the city, for example.
1: Rebecca, some people might have concern with their sharing their personal information, not just their stories, but their family history, what have you because we've seen a hack of the system and we talk about privacy all the time what do you do to protect it so is there a level of anonymity here or what do you do to protect people's personal private health care information
3: okay well that's a great question and a timely question i will say that you know we do do have a question where we specifically ask the participants in the interview would they be comfortable with a nurse navigator um, having access to that information and i think that Just like any sensitive genetic information, I think it's important to ensure that people have options upfront and they know and there's an informed consent process but I will say that at least in the people I've spoken to so far they do say that they are comfortable at least having a nurse navigator involved in their care but I totally agree with you that um, I guess especially in, in the sense of the, the familial implications of this information and a long issue of all, all the time in genetics is how do we go about notifying other family members uh, who might be at risk so there's definitely a lot of considerations, and it, and it needs to be well planned out. But I will say that when we ask people, you know, would you would you be comfortable with a nurse navigator sharing that information with their family, sorry, with the family care provider? For the most part, people are
1: um, receptive to that. Dr. H. Gary, if people have heard this conversation, would like to be part of this research study. What's the next steps?
14: Sure. So if anyone is welcome to contact me at any time with any sorts of questions. And the best way to get me is by email. Uh, so it's just my full name, holly.echegeri at med.mon.ca. Um, and uh, Rebecca, I'll get you to give yours as well, because Rebecca is uh, certainly taking a lot of these calls and doing a lot of these interviews.
3: Right. Yes, so uh, I can be reached at 709-697-2928, and my email is rjp823 at munn.ca.
1: And if people didn't have a chance to jot it down, I have that contact information right in front of me, which I'll be happy to share if anyone calls or emails about it. I appreciate the time to you both. Keep us in the loop. Thank, Thank you very so much. much. For us. <laughs> take good care. Bye bye. Bye bye. That's Dr. Holly H. Gary, Associate Professor at Munns Med School, and Rebecca is an RN and a PhD candidate. Let's take a break. When we come back, we're talking about daycare and garbage trucks. All right. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number two. Brendan, you're on the air.
15: Uh, good day, Paddy. How are you
1: today? Top shelf. How about you? Very good. Great.
15: Uh, the reason why we talked about garbage here, over a year ago, I cut it through it now. Um, what happened was a garbage truck, and all kinds of bed sheets came up through the top And one came right over my windshield. It was on the uttering Ring Road, going towards Loganberry Road. Yikes! And uh, it was cars behind me. I could hit the brakes hard, and uh, uh, more or less. And I had to look in the rearview mirror, mirror, mirror and see where I was to at the time and close to it, and got. And about ten seconds, I, I finally got off the road there, because the road, I didn't want to hit the shoulder too quick, too high speed, hit the brakes. And I got off the road there, and I took the sheet off the car, right? And I went down to the dump, followed the guy down to the dump after the truck, but I couldn't see his plate number. It was all dirty and everything I got, the plate number. And I couldn't see the plate number at all. And uh, was, it was a green truck, one of the traps. And I went to see the guy, and he said to the sheet, he said, uh, "I said, what happened? to the woman?". She said, "What?". Well, "You never got hurt?", he said. "What difference does it make?"
1: Well, it makes yeah. all the difference in the world. So, pardon. De- pardon. Was this pardon. a government truck or a private garbage
15: I truck? A, a, one of them green trucks uh, with the height, like from the top of nothing, yeah. Okay. And garbage. And I seen garbage come out of another truck there. Uh, off Torrington Road, three bags, uh, 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 clear bags, came off the truck and by Torrington Road, there on, the, on ring road, in the in the in the embankment there.
1: Right. So, I mean, was there a company name or a telephone number no. or anything on the truck? So, what happened no. after you confronted the driver?
15: I just approached him and I didn't want to argue with him. Or to get. I just, you know, more or less. I just, uh, I said, sir, boy, you know, you should watch it better than that, more or less, right? But I, I see garbage coming. I go down the highway quite a bit, and I see garbage coming around all kinds of trucks there on the highway, and it, I, I think the truck drivers don't seem to care. In my opinion, right? You know, maybe I'm wrong, I don't know, but, uh, you know.
1: Well, I mean, a lot of bad things can happen. And, you know, like the fellow who called with the lost his uh, his step ladder, the, immediately the reaction from many listeners was, why didn't he tie it down? I suppose he either neglected to or forgot to. But securing your load, I mean, going at highway speeds, you could just have a a, a screw come out of the back of a truck and potentially break your windshield. Now, nothing like a bed sheet covering you up your entire windshield. You can't see where you're going. So it's an extremely yep. dangerous situation. People just don't really care, I suppose, when it comes to securing their load on the way to the dump you know i've long thought that more often than not we should have someone at the dump if you don't have secure load before you get to dump dump off whatever you got we give you a ticket right there and then so yeah uh,
15: that's the way it should be if you give anyone a uh, ticket should be a higher enough price more or less a at, at price that do you want to do it again because it costs so much money <laughs>
1: I went to the dump last Saturday, and it was pretty busy down there. Nice day, I suppose. A lot of people like me doing some yard work, and I will guess that 25% of the loads that I can see from sitting in my rig were absolutely 100% not secured. Yeah. Yes, sir. Yeah. Brandon, I'm glad you made away unscathed.
15: Oh yeah, no problem. I just, it just was 10 seconds, and <laughs> it's unbelievable how we, you, 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 lose it like 10 seconds, and you don't know where to. Right, Joe.
1: Well, long, scary 10 seconds, I would imagine.
15: Oh, yeah.
1: That's it. Bye. Not bad. No, anyway. No. Thanks. Thanks for the call. Thank you, sir. You're Bye-bye. Welcome. Bye-bye. Bye. Okay. Yeah. Bedsheet. <laughs> Covering your windshield. Yeah. Okay. Let's see here. Let's go ahead and take a break for the 11.30 news. When we come back, we're talking daycare and medical transportation. I think specifically from Labrador. Don't go away. You're busy, but you'll never be uninformed. Get up to date on the way home. The Drive on your VOCM. Welcome back to the program. Let's go to line number one. Caller, you're on the air.
16: Hi. Hi. How's it going? Best kind, you? Oh, not the best.
1: What's
9: happening?
16: Um, I just wanted to call, I guess, and make everyone aware. So child care has been an issue in the news for everybody with the lack of availability of child care for most people. Um, but this past week in Deer Lake, uh, many of the unregulated homes we're visited by social workers, and we're told that they can no longer take the number of kids that they've been taking. Um, so that's kind of leaving a lot of families without childcare.
1: So, I mean, I guess there's ratios for regulated spaces. I suppose they should be also adhered to in non-regulated spaces. What do you think? Or take care?
3: Well, I
16: guess it's, a, you know, if you're unregulated, there's a reason that they're unregulated, you know parents I guess need to take that into consideration when they're sending a child but we're all forced to kind of accept what's there because we need childcare.
1: Yeah, I get, where you're, I get where you're coming from. I suppose there's a, an issue surrounding whether or not it could be as safe as possible environment if one person has, you know, for instance, I think for the ages of three to five or something, like I don't want to misquote it, but I think it's one ECE, for instance, to eight children. Do you think that you might be having a potentially unsafe environment if there's too many children per provider?
16: I, I guess you can and then like if it was eight per one like that would be great but that's not what the what you know the people have been told you know some are told they only can take four right but you have children who are five years old in kindergarten who have 20 kids for one teacher
1: I think the classroom environment is a little bit different than some of the a bit more of a free for all at mm-hmm. uh, a daycare setting so what are
16: I guess my concern is, like, you're coming in and, and kind of cutting parents off at their needs because there's no solutions offered then.
1: Oh, I totally so get people it. People
16: are having to be off work, and that usually goes to moms, right, who have to take time off work. And then, you know, they're cutting into pension years, and you already have to be off for maternity leave. So, you know, coming in and doing it is fine, but you need to offer solutions to parents.
1: I absolutely agree on that front too. I, I talk about take care a lot on this program yeah <coughs> and for all the obvious reasons we've had two reports in the recent past that paint a pretty desperate se- set of circumstances for for yeah. families you know what is it 80% of uh, children under the age of five live in a uh, child care desert as they're referring to it and in yeah. the city of st. John's 18 months and o- and younger there's only 5% of spaces available to children at those ages so oh man, yeah. we have got a huge problem it was it's a great idea to talk about 10 bucks a day, but it isn't working the way it should. Now, I get it. You can't flip switches and all of a sudden everything's perfect. Expanding the number yeah. of seats at the College of North Atlantic, uh, adjusting the pay grid, which hopefully will have some appreciable uh, impact. So what are they being told? Is it simply that you can only take four and then there's follow-up visits? Or what's the additional information being provided?
16: Yeah, so I guess it all just really happens. So we, the parents don't have that much information right now. You know, we're just told by the providers that we can't take your kids right now until we have more information. So we don't have timelines. We don't know how long that's going to be. We don't know what needs to happen. You know, there are, there are reasons people don't want to be regulated because it is very restrictive. Um, you know, children might not be able to go to playgrounds. They can't go outside and play in a, unless it's in a fenced in yard. So there are like regulations that are meant to keep kids safe. But, you know, homes, there should be a case by case basis for most people. You know, parents should have the ability to make the decisions about the safety of their children.
1: Absolutely. I didn't know this was happening, so I'm glad you called about it. Mm -hmm. We can deal directly with the government to see if they have any more information they can share and what they're offering insofar as solutions go for the families that no longer have a space. That would be great. Yeah, I'll do that. Perfect. Appreciate the call. Thank you. Take good care. Bye bye. Bye. And that was in Deer Lake, right? Just so I make sure I've got my ducks in a row before I contact the gov. Let's go to line number three. Theresa, you're on the air.
17: Hi, good morning. Good morning. I'm, uh, excuse me. I'm concerned, you know, about us in Labrador West. We had to go out for medical uh dollars dollars like, I was out in December, and I had to go out again, like, the 12th of June. I got to pay $1,700 just to get out of Labrador West. And I'm a senior, and it's really, really a lot of money for us in Labrador West.
1: Absolutely. And the concept that, you know, a lot of people speak to is that you get the uh, the medical transportation support the financial assistance after the fact. So you still got to come up with the money up front. We've heard of people going to their churches, doing 50-50s, and then you add into the complication if you happen to live in Wabush, for instance, and you've got the need to be in St. John's, we'll say, about three, four, five times a year for ongoing care. So no question, it's a huge problem.
17: Yeah, it is a huge problem, you know, because uh, I think the government theory should consider us widows in Labrador, uh, uh, seniors in Labrador West, because you know I I talked to a guy there. He said he went out. He paid nineteen hundred dollars just to get out for his medical. You know, and yeah. in Vermont now, Vermont got a it, we're like twenty four kilometers from Vermont. Okay, mm-hmm. uh, with those crowding Vermont, we got the same deal because. We're only twenty-four kilometers. Like we go to Montreal, it would cost us five hundred dollars. So, we go to Newfoundland; it's going to cost us, you know, it might cost us fifteen. It might get it for thirteen, but I may have to pay two thousand. Who knows that? We don't know that. And uh, you know, with the fears going up and stuff like that it's a big concern it's a big concern in labrador city we got lots of seniors because i've been here it was just 1973 you know and it's a big concern we got our we got a lot of seniors in labrador West.
1: Uh, we've talked about this issue, and there's lots of shortcomings in your region for seniors, whether it be housing or otherwise, or long-term care. So we've had Jordan Brown on many times to talk about the medical transportation issue. We've talked about it with the minister. We can certainly keep that conversation going. Because if people are simply unable to come for their care because they can't afford it, then that has a real implication on their health. If they if they say, well, I couldn't get the church group to support me to the extent I need. I can't get the 50-50 going or whatever else are doing to try to accomplish the travel or cover uh, travel costs so absolutely concerned that we talk about all the time and we'll keep doing it
17: yes sir thank you and thank you for listening
1: to me i appreciate your time and you have a good day same to you take Goodbye. care all right bye-bye uh, okay let's go to line number two russell you're on the air
12: hi patty how are you okay you i'm pretty good. Pretty good Uh, You've had a week of uh, discussing quite a number of contentious issues. I guess you're looking forward to the long weekend.
1: I'm good. (laughs)
12: Um, So I'm calling in today just to inform uh, maybe yourself and some of your audience about the National Citizens' Inquiry happening uh, in Canada right now. Yep. Uh, If I could just uh, briefly explain what this is. Uh, So this is a series of hearings taking place uh, at eight locations across Canada and today's last day of testimony it's occurring in ottawa uh these hearings are have been organized to allow canadians to uh, testify about their pandemic experiences uh testimony has been from 225 or will be in total from 225 canadians more than 90 scientists Uh, testimony is sworn under oath Uh, there's four commissioners uh, receiving their testimony, who will uh, complete a report, and a list of recommendations as to how future pandemic responses should occur. And uh, the hearings can be found uh, on both Facebook and YouTube, just uh, type National Citizens Inquiry into the search bar. And you can also go to the website, nationalcitizensinquiry.ca Are you familiar with the inquiry at all?
1: I am. I've actually seen some of the testimony, whether it be from Chess Crosby or others. Uh, People have been sending me links, and I have looked at some of it. Some of it has been, I think, reasonable, and questions that are reasonable about pandemic response. Some of it, just from my own personal opinion, some of it's been a bit outlandish, which I think really takes away some of the sting or the gravitas that this inquiry and the eventual report will entail. But I'm willing to have a look at the uh, end result. Why not?
12: Sure, um, I won't take too much time on this uh, particular no uh, topic, but uh, if I could just briefly mention some of the people who've given testimony, um, just a, a quick rundown of uh, the various people. Um, there's been a number of medical professionals, uh, as I mentioned, some scientists, also doctors and nurses, uh, most of whom, of course, who disagree with the uh, COVID response and who in many cases have lost jobs. Uh, yesterday there was a behavioural and developmental Psychologist who spoke of the impacts of social isolation and masking on children, in particular. Uh, there's been military personnel, including one doctor who uh, was uh, working out of some place in Atlantic Canada, who spoke of his experience in managing the pandemic, in particular the fact that he didn't see any people coming in who he had to treat for it. Uh, there was a molecular biologist from Prince Edward Island who had a PhD, Dr. Laura Braden, uh, former emergency response manager from Alberta. Uh, one particular um, particularly important point of his testimony is that an emergency response is supposed to be designed to minimize the impact on society. However, in his case, it was turned upside down and we focused solely upon minimizing the impact upon the healthcare system. Uh, yesterday, YouTube commentator Viva Frey spoke. Newfoundland comedian Kathy Jones spoke uh, two days ago about her pandemic personal pandemic experience. Uh, yesterday, there was a CBC journalist, Marianne Kloak who resigned and citing uh, the collapse of journalism, in her view. Uh, Yesterday, there was a global news director of newscasts who was suspended for, or actually later fired, for attending a freedom rally. And yesterday as well, there was one elderly woman. Her name is Sheila Lewis. She's in need of a double organ transplant, presumably a lung transplant, given the fact that she has an oxygen line in her nose. And uh, she's been put under a gag order by a judge And prevent it from speaking freely about uh, her situation. And, uh, you know, I think people who are uh, committed to both truth, freedom, well, three things actually, truth, freedom, and justice, should really tune in, as I mentioned, go to YouTube or facebook or the website national citizens inquiry and become informed
1: if if people think that public health officials politicians whether it be the prime minister or various premiers and people like dr janice Fitzgerald or bonnie henry or whoever if we're uh, inquiring or some people are questioning their truth should we also be questioning the truth of some of the testimony we've heard in the at the national citizens inquiry absolutely yeah because there was, there was one clip that I saw that I thought you know how's anyone supposed to take this serious it was someone I think from the United States if I'm not mistaken and they are surmising that 250 million Americans will be killed by the vaccine by 2026 like how am I supposed to accept that as anything with any modicum of truth
12: Do you recall who gave that testimony? I don't.
1: I I don't. I see so many things in the course of a day, Russell. I have to apologize. Between emails and social media, I'm absolutely overwhelmed. But those types of comments, I think, really do chip away at whatever truth people might associate with some of the testimony. What do you think?
12: Well, you know, I don't know how anyone will come up with that kind of prediction. I don't know either. Right. But that's,
1: you know, when we look backwards and absolutely, we have to reflect on the pandemic response, whether it be in protecting the healthcare system or long term care residents or congregate living. Look, nothing's out of bounds or nothing's uh, sacrosanct to me. One thing that I've always long thought throughout this, though, is. I'm glad it wasn't my job because no textbook, no interest there's very few people alive that have gone through the last pandemic, the Spanish flu in 1917. So I think there was a lot of, I'm not sure what to do here, right? Then there was a lot of, uh, Confusion about how contagious it might be, how lethal it might be, and the various ver- uh, the variations or the mutations that came around, and then all the clamor about the vaccine. People wanted it, said we weren't going to get it in 10 years. All of a sudden, we got it. Now they don't want it. and How effective it is, and how long the protection lasts, and natural immunity. I mean, there's just been so much to it. As I said, I had a difficulty navigating, it, and I have no say in anything. No, sure. no rule setting, no restrictions, no mandates. So I found it all pretty confusing right throughout the entirety was there some examples of clear mistakes being made with overreach I think so and what they are and what how we rectify that or how we address it going forward I'm still a little bit foggy on that front but I'm not opposed to having a look at the final report and to see how politicians absorb it whether or not they even acknowledge it so I'm willing to do that much
12: well, that's great. I mean, we should all have an open mind when it comes to evaluation of any uh, issue of importance. If I could just make one final comment. Okay. Um, we've been advised, you know, by Janice Fitzgerald in particular to show kindness if someone's wearing a mask. Um, I think that, you know, she being a public health official, ought to show some kindness and, and come on the air and, and tell people, look, if you're outside walking alone, you know, we're coming up on summer now, we're gonna have days up in the 30s again. I've seen so many people walking the streets wearing a mask when it's like 35 degrees outside. Uh, You know, these people have probably been psychologically impacted by all of the I'll call it propaganda that's been out there about mask wearing and so on. And the fears that people ought to have about this uh, COVID virus, which, again, is a real virus and a real problem. But like people do not need to wear these masks outside. They don't need to wear them when driving alone in their cars. And so like as a public health official, shouldn't she be telling people this?
1: But isn't there the concept, you use the word freedom, and of course I appreciate my freedom. Shouldn't people be free to do whatever they see fit? Like, uh, I know this one person who's about 75 years of age. I see them all the time at Sobeys. They continue to wear their mask. And the same thing about people who weren't wearing a mask when they were part of the mandate. Dr. Fitzgerald also said, you know, be kind to those folks. Let's not have interactions or altercations regarding masked or unmasked. This one person, he said, "Uh, do you wonder why I still wear the mask? I said, no, that's up to you. And he says, I'm going to keep wearing it over the summer. I said, even when you're outside. I asked him that, that, that specific question. He said, you know what? I did it last year, and I had so little interference with my hay fever, I'm going to do it again. And I thought, all right, bye.
12: <laughs> Good sure, enough. I mean, I don't disagree with people making personal health decisions, and I certainly don't believe in altercations uh, with individuals if somebody's making a decision such as that. But, you know... It's not a need outside if you're walking alone, let's face it, especially in hot temperatures, it's damaging to your health. There's been studies showing that mask wearing can actually increase blood carbon dioxide levels by 300 to 500 times,
1: That's what which, you're is, wearing.
12: which is health damaging.
1: Yeah, and depends what the mask you're wearing. And one well, last comment, because I really have to go. Sure. No one thing worked as a standalone protection. It just did not. Whether it be the combination of covering your coughs and sneezes, masking in public spaces, physical distancing, vaccinations, whatever, they all worked together to offer some level of protection. And I don't know what level that is. But so no one thing was the silver bullet here. It just never was and probably never will be, regardless of whatever virus comes around. Unless there's so such a thing as 100% effective vaccine, which. For some diseases, that's proven to be true. Others, not so much. John, pardon me, Russell, I really do have to sneak in one more call after this break. Thank you. Thank you. Bye-bye. Have a great day. You too, sir. Bye-bye. All right, break time. Welcome back. Let's go. Final word of the day goes to line number four. Good morning, John. You're on the air. Good
18: morning, Patty. Thank you for taking my call. Happy to do it. Yeah, uh, I was a resident of Happy Valley Goose Bay for 16 years. Yes, sir. sir. And they're putting on a come-home year. Uh, from uh, Ju- July the 28th until August the
1: 13th. Sounds great. What's going on with the and kind well, of events? Uh,
18: well, that's such as a come-home-year event, right? And uh, I've been speaking one of to the town's residents, and they've had a couple of meetings on the go, and uh, uh, there's nothing posted in reference to the events and uh, what's on the go, but people from the island and other places having to make travel and uh, housing uh, accommodations, right? So it would be helpful if we could get some information on the town's website as to, uh, as to any information that they may have, and maybe a form where they if people were coming could put it on there. So I, I just put it out there for what it's worth, and maybe somebody will listen and uh, we get something done. Thank you very much,
1: Patty. Happy to do it. I'll tell you what, John, I'll follow up directly with the town and ask a, a town representative, someone formally involved with the Come Home Year celebrations, to yes. come on and talk about it and ask whether or not they're going to provide that information wide and far on their website because that's the easiest place for people to get info these days.
18: Well, I, I think you're, you calling them might be a good help, right?
1: Yeah, I'll just say to David here, David Williams, can we get Happy Valley Goose Bay rep on early next week? Okay, we're working on it. Thanks, Patty. You're welcome, sir. Okay, buddy. Take care, John. Bye. Right, bye-bye. Yeah, you know, for many communities, when they have their come-home year celebrations, they go off without a hitch, and they people come in droves, because a lot of people like to return, especially if that's the community or the town or the city of your origin, your birthplace, and where your family still is, possibly. So, yes, that's no problem. We'll follow up with the good folks up in Happy Valley Goose Bay, get some more info for people like John, and whoever else might be interested in making their way to that community. Alright, lots of Come Home here stuff going on this year and if you're a municipal leader or a committee organizer you want to share a bit of info about what's going on in your community for Come Home Year let's do it on the program. Alright, last check in on the Twitter box, wherever we go same open line, follow us there someone making references to the mask wearing and the reference was to just look at some of the uh, countries in Asia where people wear them year round everywhere and a lot of that of course to protect themselves from the Terrible air pollution in some of those cities. Anyway, that's a good point. Uh, email address is openlinefiosim.com, And we will indeed pick up this conversation again on Monday morning right here on VOCM and Big Land FM's Open Line. On behalf of the producer, David Williams, I'm your host, Patty Daly. Have yourself a safe, fun, happy, long weekend. Watch the speeds on the highway. Keep safety front of mind. Fire, boat, highway. And we'll talk on Tuesday. Don't go away.